0: Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, February 8, 843 Good morning, Josh. Morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Do you want a statehouse update related to NIL? Josh, I know you're waiting with bated <laughs> breath. I mean, he texted me at like 1145 last night, and again at 215 this morning. Hey, man, I hate to aggravate, but have you heard anything about the name, image, and likeness bill yeah, I in that. the State House?
1: I'm chomping at the bit. That
0: pertains to Clemson, Carolina, and Coastal. Is that Was that you? I mean, th- that, that text me twice during my sleep time to make sure we were locked and loaded for NIL report first thing this morning.
1: That's right. I okay. couldn't care. Lo- I mean, I can't wait. To Joshua, hear what, you have what to do say. you
0: want to happen in the world of NIL? <laughs> I mean, if Josh were king of college football, since you're such uh, a student of dictators, uh, if Josh were king of the world, king of the football world, athletic world, what would you want to happen? I um, know what you're about to say.
1: I'd like to know what NIL even stands for. Name,
0: image, and likeness, Josh. (laughs) Okay. Please listen to the host when he does the work. (laughs) So what would you like to happen? Do you believe college athletes should be paid?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Why why should they be paid? Because they're generating enormous amounts of revenue?
1: Yeah. And it only
0: makes sense that they get a share of the enormous amounts of revenue they're generating?
1: Yeah, I think the value of a college degree has gone down. It's not worth... It's not as, uh, as important as a million dollars, in my opinion.
0: And the amount of revenue they generate has gone up. Yes. So you're arguing the college, the, the value of that degree has gone down. Is that fair? I mean, you know, you know how bad I am about higher education, the monolith that is higher education. But is that fair to say that? I mean, is it fair to say that a petroleum engineering degree from Texas A&M has declined in value over the last 20 years? Yeah. No, I disagree with that. Is it, is it fair to say that? I mean, I'll use my daughter as an example. I mean, it, it's going to cost a lot of money. There's no doubt about it. But she will have a degree in finance with the Dalton Moore School of Business. Is that overvalued? I mean, I'm not talking about Shakespearean theater. You can't say this, Josh. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put you on the spot first thing this morning. Because I felt yesterday you wanted to talk more. So I'm going to give you a chance here. So if a degree in petroleum engineering from Texas A&M a degree in finance from the Baltimore School of Business and a degree in Shakespearean theater from Stanford are the same exact cost Which one, one well be, one has a one has less value I mean I know it's Stanford, but it's still Shakespearean theater or Greek literature if one is a finance degree and the other is an engineering degree I mean didn't that I'm mean, not I, yeah would, I you, would you agree that those wouldn't you agree that those degrees would be would allow for more uh, salary and wages in your work life?
1: I yeah, I would think okay,
0: so. Okay, so, so maybe they're not worth less today than they were. I mean, they cost more, no doubt about it. But but as the degrees that pay the most have gone up, I mean, as as the cost of the education to attain those degrees have gone up, I would argue. The salaries that coincide with those degrees have gone up as well. But the Shakespearean theater, the guy that shows up on Sunday morning to read Shakespearean theater before the old ladies go to church, I mean, he's probably living in squalor, and he should for not being smart enough to go get a degree. Uh, imagine having $100,000 in student debt and having a degree in Shakespearean theater. But I, I'm not opposed to Shakespearean theater nor Greek literature. I think it's very important for us to be well-rounded. I mean, Jefferson believed in an enlightened public, a well-rounded public, a balanced, a balanced and educated public. I just hope you don't, I hope it's a hobby. <laughs> I hope Shakespearean theater is a hobby and Greek literature is a hobby and not uh, an avenue that you hope to travel to be gain, gainfully employed. Here's the latest that I've heard on the uh, NIO bill. The Clemson folk are more... Interested in bringing it in house, the Gamecock folk are less interested in bringing it completely in house. By that I mean the Clemson collect. Let's say Garnet Trust and Orange Trust. The Clemson folk, and I'm talking about people who work at Clemson, who are in the state house talking to legislators or telling legislators that they would rather have it controlled by either the university's athletic department or ipte That's what I'm hearing. The Gamecocks, on the other hand, are telling legislators that we probably would rather it not be controlled by the university. university will have a say in all this, but there's no doubt about it. They'll be very involved in this, but they want to leave the standalone collective like Garnet Trust. So, in other words, Clemson says we don't want an Orange Trust. South Carolina says we do want a Garnet Trust. I don't know why. I mean, I thought and talked to somebody yesterday about the advantages or disadvantages. I guess one just works better at one place and the other works better at the other place. Clemson has had some issues with (sighs) coordination between their collective IPTA and the university. Seems South Carolina has done a little better job. I don't know why. Don't have any ideas. Is it personnel? Is it the way they want things to be? Don't don't have any idea why that's the case. And I'm speculating because I've heard some of this, that Clemson... Has not been as uh, has not been as uh, pleased with the way their collectives have operated. South Carolina has been a little more pleased with the way um, their collectives have been. And I, I, don't, I don't want to overstate the information I have. That's it. I mean, I talked to someone yesterday in college athletics. I talked to someone yesterday at the state House, and that's kind of what they told me. Now one went into a lot of specifics about meetings and timelines, and I. You know, whatever. I mean, it won't. he's kind of new at it, so he thinks it'll happen on time. I know better. <laughs> it won't. It'll take a while. It'll happen this session. But but what will happen now, here's how the sausage is made. Some of the Clemson folk will meet with some of the Gamecock folk outside of the General Assembly, and they'll say, hey, why do you guys want it this way? Uh, why do you guys want it that way? And there'll be some sort of, I don't compromise, there'll be some sort of negotiation between the two universities and they'll go to the General Assembly and say, "Hey, we've worked out our disagreements. Here's some language I think both of us can live with." Um, I did hear someone say yesterday. Some uh, I just thought it was a bit revealing. They were talking to a certain person in college athletics on the radio yesterday, and the person said, "And I wish I had the exact quote, but I can, I can, because I like, wow, okay, um, he believes that." Um, talking about NIL and this new era and this disruption in college athletics. That's our word of the week, dis- disruption in college athletics. And the person said over the airwaves, um, you know, the former intercollegiate model work, you ready, was working perfectly. 98% of the kids got a college degree. That's not true. About 1.5% go to play a professional sport in some way, shape, or form. That's about true. I mean, if college football, basketball, and baseball players, about 2%. I mean, I've seen it when it's closer to about 2% go on and earn a living. Of the 2% that go earn a living, about one-half of 1% get wealthy. So one-half of 1% of all college athletics or athletes make that a career. By the 2% number, I mean Josh gets drafted. Josh signs a contract. Josh is a fifth-round pick. Josh stays on a roster for two years, and then Josh goes in the insurance business or the construction business or whatever people do after they leave you know, college, you kind of extended your college career and got paid to play a game because the team said, hey, I mean, this this kid may develop. You know what I mean? He may be a player. Uh, we'll take him to the fifth round. Um, and he did, you don't get life-changing money, so you got to go to work after you leave. That's the 2% number. The less than 1% number is the the LeBron James, way well, you go to college, uh, the Patrick Mahomes of the world, you know, the, the Debo Samuels of the world. Um, there'll be some players at Clemson. That, that, and, and probably one or two at Spencer Rattler. Uh, may, may be a first or second round draft choice, and he'll get a lot of money. I mean, it'll change his life forever. Um, I can't think of a Will Shipley at Clemson. I mean, he may be a first or second round draft choice, may get life-changing money, but the majority don't. The majority don't get drafted. And of the ones that get drafted, even a fewer percentage change their lives forever and never have to work post-playing football. But when the person said... That the the former model of intercollegiate athletics was working perfectly, I'm going like yeah for the university it was, but I mean, there's no doubt about it. We are the caretakers and caregivers to the to the student athlete. I mean he was playing up this you know we love our student athletes, we take care of our student athletes, um, but the former model was not perfect. But I mean, the Supreme Court, I mean if I'd have been the journalist, I said have you read the court's opinion? But I mean, you you think mighty highly of the, of the former model. <laughs> Have you read Alito and Kavanaugh's scathing uh, opinion? Well, I mean, we're not here to talk about that. <laughs> no. I work for a university, you know. The university yeah. sends me out, and, here and it was perfect for the university. Sure, it was. It was. It was. It was. Yeah, but I mean, it was a license to steal. It was. It was a license to send someone out with the risk of injuring themselves playing a game, uh, uncompensated athletic performance as part of the student learning experience is in the bylaws. So, yeah, I mean, it's perfect. Once again, I said it before and I'll say it again. I was decent at building truck beds. I mean, my family, were we made a living building truck beds. My brother and his kids still make a living building truck beds. But I'd live in a bigger house with a longer driveway if I didn't have to pay welders and truck drivers. I can assure you (laughs) of that. I would have been the Chamber of Commerce businessman of the year every single year. And Rev and Josh would have gone, how does he do it? But how are they that successful in building truck beds in the middle of a tobacco field? Not paying my welders, man. Mm -hmm. Not paying my truck drivers. But that tends to increase the margin. (laughs) Because most people know that in business, the most expensive line item, eight out of ten businesses, is labor. But the cost of labor, paying people to do a job. You've got all these other ancillaries, but if you can take and strike that off. I mean, I was thinking about it driving home one day, Reb. I mean, I went back and looked at some of the. I didn't look at them. I mean, visually, mentally, I'm looking at the P and L of of you know the truck body manufacturing plant. Double A Builders. When I was younger, and I'm going like, oh, if I can take that line out of it, yeah, if I could yeah. cut my labor costs by ninety percent, what that does to your bottom you line, you better believe it. Uh, once again, um, I'm probably not driving a truck with 150 thousand miles on it. I'm probably not arguing, complaining about what a fee is at USC the next time they send me a tuition payment for my daughter. I probably just write a check and say. You know, thank you, welders and truck drivers, for subsidizing my big house with my long driveway. For
2: your uncompensated
0: professional yeah. performance. But if you asked me to comment on that model, I would have said, that's the perfect model to build sure, uh, truck bodies. Sure, of course. Yeah, you know, it's the perfect intercollegiate athletic <laughs> model. That would have been the perfect model of which to build and manufacture um, at truck beds. I said something yesterday that, that my gut instinct, we'd said it a little bit later in the show, um, something tells me that Nikki Haley is doing better in South Carolina than many anticipate. Rev was talking about, is it Democrat turnout? No, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't have any idea. Now, the morning consult came out with a poll yesterday that shoots my theory down. <laughs> oh, really? But the morning consult poll yesterday, the latest poll, hot off the press. You ready? Uh, 68 Trump, 31 Haley. Hmm. The other two polls we have, uh, we got a Washington Post poll that was made fairly public, 58-32 And then we've got an Emerson poll, 54-25. A lot of undecideds in the Emerson poll. Uh, The undecideds probably break Trump's way. I mean, they always do because people don't like to verbalize uh, their support of Trump. So the day that I say, as a Palmetto State political pundit, something tells me that Haley's going to be a little closer to Trump than than we anticipate, the morning consult poll says, you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) We got Trump at 68, Haley at 30. There's no way. There's just no way it's 70-30. There's just no way it's 70-30. Could it be 65-35? I've maintained on Trump's best day, it's 65-35. Um, conventional wisdom says amongst the experts that on her best day at 60-40, something tells me that Nikki gets above 40. Something tells me, what did she get, New Hampshire, 43? Newsflash, I'll say it now. Nikki Haley is not going to win the Republican primary. Nikki Haley is not going to win the South Carolina primary. There aren't enough Democrats to cross over. Trump has the Republican base on lockdown. I mean, seven, maybe eight of 10 Republican voters are going to vote for Haley. But there's this belief that some of the Democrats, the Democrat turnout was so small because some were waiting to go vote for, vote for Haley to stop Trump and they don't care much for Biden. I mean, I get that. I, I would imagine there are some doing that. There's just not enough. Rev said, well, only 4% voted in the Democrat primary. Well, I mean, only 16 normally do. It's not like you go from 4 to 100. I mean, there is no turnout in human history where 100% turnout, so you can't calculate according to that, well, I mean, 96% of the Democrats didn't vote. Yeah, and about 60s about 70% never will. <laughs> you know, they just don't vote in primaries. Uh, you, you got a, you got a, a selection process in these, uh, in these primaries, and I don't know how to extrapolate what if all the Democrats from 4 to 16 turned out for Nikki Haley. You know, how close does that get her? That's not what I'm basing my argument on. My argument tells me there's something out there about South Carolina that doesn't want to embarrass one of their own. That's not an analytic I mean, that's not data. But I mean, think about
2: how embarrassing Nevada was for her when you had. But she's not from Nevada. I, I know, and that's that's the different. That's the difference here. But you know, obviously, uh, none of these choices got sixty percent to her thirty percent. So that means sixty percent actually
0: took the t- the trouble, the time, the effort to go to a poll to vote for none of these. I just think there are going to be some people walk into that poll and say, "Man, I'm a South Carolinian. She's a South Carolinian." I mean, this isn't going to turn the election one way or another. I just don't want the lady that was governor of our state to get trounced in her own state. Take a break. Back in a few. You know, there's one part of this that we're not talking about, and, and I don't know this. I mean, once again, it's not quantifiable. It's hard to say how much of this. Nikki has never, ever not succeeded. She's been somewhat of a chosen one. I mean, things have been easier for Nikki and the Republican Party than most why because the party believed it had an issue with diversity why did they believe that because they did have an issue with diversity stale pale male along comes somebody who's not stale not pale not male and she gets embraced and she gets uplifted and she's given every opportunity to be the spokesperson for whatever uh, you know you know positive message the gop had so could nikki i'm asking this question could nikki find it difficult to accept that this is going to be her first loss. And it's on the grandest of scales. But I mean, there's no shame in losing the presidency. I mean, she's to be applauded. As much as I want Trump to win, I think Nikki's to be applauded for finding out a way or figuring out a way to be the last two standing, one of the last two standing. I think odds were she was going to be one of the last two standing. And I knew it was going to be inevitable when she chose to be the darling of the donors. I mean, the donors were looking for somebody who would passionately oppose Trump, she said, I'll do it. Now, now Rev makes a valid point, but but I don't criticize Nikki for this. Rev says Nikki's problem now is she's insulted Trump, therefore insulted the Trump voter. Where is the future now? Well, I mean, she had no choice. I mean, once the campaign is you or I, I've got to create contrast. I mean, why do I say vote for me? I'm a little bit better than him. I mean, he and I do. Nikki's big problem with the campaign trail is trying to distinguish herself policy-wise from Trump. Because when she's asked, she can say, look, he's an old white guy, I'm not. And figure it He's an old white guy, I'm not. Nikki, where's your policy differences? Crickets. Nowhere. So why would I vote for you? But I mean, if I find Trump unacceptable, I mean, her comments are always without the drama, without the chaos. Trump policies without the drama, without the chaos. Well, I think the voters in the Republican Party today kind of like the chaos. They kind of embrace the drama. That's the part I think Nikki uh, misunderstands. I feel it's somewhat
2: necessary. Well,
0: I mean, if you go to Ken Langone's place in New York City, the co-founder of Home Depot, I mean, he doesn't want chaos. He doesn't want disruption. And she's got to talk in a way that convinces him, look, I'm not going to be chaotic. I'm not going to be disruptive. I told Drew McKissick, I've told Robert Haley this. You give the GOP voter today a chance to vote for what is or what could be. They're going to vote for what could be. But I mean, there's just something innate about GOP voters right now. This is what is. This is what could be. Um, I don't know exactly what's behind curtain number one, but it's what is. And behind curtain number two is what could be. The GOP voter, to a large percentage, you are going to vote for the curtain that says, this could be. I don't know what it is, but it could be. And I'll, I'll endure some of the chaos, some of the disruption, some of the craziness that goes along with that. See, that's where I think the, the those in charge, remember in, I keep going back to Springsteen, remember in the Springsteen on Broadway, I mean, none of you have watched it, I know, but Rev's watched it. Remember the part on Springsteen on Broadway, Rev, when he says, it all changed on a Sunday night in 1957, whatever year it was, he's talking about when Elvis came on the Ed Sullivan Show, and he said, "You know, on a 19 screen, a 19-inch screen, black and white, on, um, on you know Coit Street in uh, Freehold, New Jersey, the world changed in an instant. It's a kid from the Southern Sticks, and he says, "If they knew what they were about to unleash, they would have shut that crap down, <laughs> or better yet." bought it up for themselves and the establishment can't figure out how to bottle up this energy. But if they could, they would not attempt to shut it down, but they don't have, once again, as Springsteen said, they would have shut that crap down or they would have probably more likely bought it up and owned it themselves because the world had changed. Something different had happened. And and I do believe there's a fair comparison to what Springsteen talks about the night, that young, a young generation, I mean, I don't remember this. Obviously, born in 63, Josh, I know you don't remember. Rev doesn't remember. But, I mean, I've heard stories about how kids woke up the next day. Wow. Wow. I mean, there's something different kicking now, and a lot of people try to tamp it down. I mean, remember, Elvis was viewed or, or um, filmed from the waist up. You know that, Josh? I mean, on the Ed Sullivan Show, they wouldn't let him. The pelvic thrust and gyrations were too offensive. Uh, to, to, to the American public. But but something changed that night. Something has changed in the GOP. And I don't have any idea if the record companies knew how to deal with that or not. I mean, obviously Colonel Parker did. <laughs> you know, get that boy on that stage is all he wanted uh, to make money. But um but the you know, Ken Langone's of the world. And I and I'm not beating up on Ken Langone. If I were Ken Langone, I would be doing exactly what he's doing. If I were Jamie Dimon, I would be doing exactly what Jamie Dimon is doing. If my job was, was running JP Morgan, I would want predictability. I would want stability. I would not want disruption. I mean, my world is good. I have, I have worked hard to build a, a monstrosity of a machine, and the machine is very advantageous to the way we do things. JP Morgan is not a criminal enterprise. JP Morgan is not some communist government or regime or dictatorship. J.P. Morgan is playing the hand they were dealt, but they had a large part in building that poker table where all the hands are being dealt. And along comes a guy that is different. I mean, he doesn't have pelvic thrust, but he's different. He's a disruptor. People are like fundamentally, whoa, something's happening here. And I think the great mistake the smartest people on on the planet made was believing they could contain it, believing it would dissipate believing the hayseeds would eventually give up, roll over, go home, do whatever, and they just misunderstood or misestimated the intensity. I still think there's a great misestimation. I mean, I've got friends of mine who I don't think understand the resentment that the working class has towards its, 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 uh, its government. I'll give you an example. Rev said Tucker Carlson's interview with Vladimir Putin is going to drop at about 6 tonight, this afternoon, this evening. Um, I mean, I don't know if it goes on Tucker Carlson for an hour and then on X. I don't know if they do it simultaneously. I read, I read it's, it's both. Okay, so so at the same time, simultaneously, TuckerCarlson.com or, um, or X, Twitter. I don't believe that people understand. I'm talking about people who are somewhat plugged in. I don't know that they understand the resentment the general public have for their government and the willingness they are to hear Vladimir Putin out. I think it would astound. Here's the best way I can argue, guys. You want to get philosophical? We always do from, uh, you know, on a show. I mean, there's always a bit of a philosophical moment in the show. Conventional wisdom is dying. I mean, the things that you've been conditioned to believe, that they're conventional. I mean, you've been told over and over and over again, you know, this is true. You know, this is not true. You got to believe this person. You can't believe that person, conventional wisdom, is dead. It may not even be dying. It may be completely and totally dead. And where do you go when conventional wisdom dies? Because historically, conventional wisdom says Tucker Carlson's an embarrassment to journalism. He's an embarrassment to America. He's um, he's, he's turned his back. He's a traitor to the United States because he's going to interview a guy that we've been told is more evil than any human being that has ever walked the face of the planet Earth. I mean, I'm not defending Putin by any stretch. But there's something about this. I believe that Putin's a thug. I believe that Putin kills his political rivals. But we lock him up and try to get him off the ballot. I mean, to me, there's a little balls in killing your political opponent. There's far less courage in figuring out a way to put him in prison or get him off the ballot. But we're going to lecture to Vladimir Putin about morality and ethics and doing the right thing? No, I think conventional wisdom is dead. And I think the, um, the self-evident truths are carrying the day. I think people hear things, they've been conditioned to believe things, but their lives show them something completely different. And if you've got conventional wisdom in one ear and self-evident truths in the other, 95% of us are smart enough to believe what we're looking at instead of what we've been told over the years is true. Take a break. Back in a few. The most recent example of conventional wisdom dying is the the border security bill. Conventionally and historically, they would have gone in that room. McConnell sent Lankford in the room. Lankford negotiates with Schumer and some of the other. And I mean, they're not the only two. I mean, they're chief of staffs and aides and, and probably a consultant and lobbyist or two uh, as part of the conversation. But out of that come, I mean, you're not leaving Raytheon out of the deal. I'm sure they had somebody in the room talking about, hey, remember that? Foreign aid. remember that you know those um those weapons the Ukrainians need and the Israelis um need and your opinion it could be whatever you choose for it to be but that's how it's made. I mean there's a gaggle of people they get together, uh you know they they hash out some some disagreements. Uh the unit party doesn't disagree a lot but they have to give the optic of you know we worked hard to get to the bottom of this. Um they come out they propose a border security bill, 118 billion dollars, 20 billion is actually spent on on border security, but conventionally and historically that narrative would have been sold to the American public in a way that we were not aware. I mean, nobody's going to read that bill. Nobody, there aren't more people reading bills today than ever before. There's just a lot more opinion out there. there a lot more news out there. Um, it's a decentralization of media. I was thinking about this yesterday. You guys are going to call me crazy when I say this. I actually wrote the name down this morning. I tried to figure out one of the most fundamental moments in the history of decentralizing media, and I think I've got it figured out. I read a little bit about, over the weekend, who is Craig Newmark? Mm-hmm. Josh, you know Craig I know. Newmark? I do not. Would you agree, Rev, that the classified ads were the economic bedrock of print media?
2: Oh sure, I mean, that, yeah. you know that would, people that buying be... and selling things. Oh yeah, things there and were car tons of them. Oh my
0: lord, it in was every, like especially every Sunday morning. There would have been ten or twelve yep. pages, and they're twenty bucks an ad or twenty five bucks an ad. So the economic pillar of print media was the classified ad. You know who Craig Newmark is? The guy that founded Craigslist. And if you look, oh, there's thanks. almost a simultaneous ascending and descending. Uh, print media, because once again, I'm not saying the journalists suck, I'm not saying the papers suck, but the revenue took a serious hit when people said, man, I don't have to pay 20 bucks a week to advertise my car, my house, my business, whatever, $100 a week, whatever it is you're paying for that classified ad, which was the economic pillar of print media, there's this thing called Craigslist. And they're telling me that that's where people are going now to try and find a house or a car or a, you know, a, a trampoline, a, a used trampoline or a, a used storage shed that somebody's moving away, washer and dryer. I mean, you know got a new job, moving out of town, need to sell the washer and dryer. It works good. I'll take 300 bucks for the pair. You don't want to go spend you know 2,000 for a pair now, so you go to Craigslist, and I'm convinced that that was far more impactful. I'm not the only one. There's an article out there in The Intelligencer and it's kind of an offshoot of the New York. Anyway, um, it's it's a guy that was 30 years old, Josh, and he was in print and media, and he worked at the Washington Post, and he kept telling the guys at the Post, "Hey man, this Craigslist is taking off." Oh, uh, no, nah, man, this, we we got this figured out. But who wouldn't advertise it to the Washington Post? You want to sell a washing dryer, a car, a truck, a camper shell, you know, uh, a drum set? You know, your kid <laughs> your kid wants to play the drums, and he plays them for six months. And you are like, I don't want him playing and he do not want to play. You know, so you sell these drums, and you put on there, paid $1,000, dollars will take $250. Um, I just believe, because I went back and looked, and there's no way to exactly track, you know, declining revenue and, and appreciating revenue, but it's, clo- it's pretty close. Um, because once again, Rev, the journalistic integrity has always been, in my opinion, questionable. I mean, I think it's more questionable now than it's ever been. But, but newspapers aren't altruistic. But they're not state-run. I mean, I would argue the narrative is kind of state-run, but they're not. I mean, they're for-profit businesses. And for them to make a profit, they got to have those 10, 12, 15, 20 pages of classified ads filled every day. And they had sales staff. I mean, they had, hey, can we help you sell this lot full of cars? Can we help you sell these widgets that you're manufacturing? We've got X number of subscribers, X number of readers and, um, and we'll give you ample opportunity to be successful in the marketplace. And all of a sudden, somebody said, hey, cancel that ad I've got to the Washington Post. There's this Craigslist thing that I think is growing faster than you guys are. And Craig Newmark. Hmm, I mean, that, that's okay. kind of an interesting name. And um, Well, it goes back to the ultimate disruptor, the Internet. Sure. I mean, the Internet was like, I mean, you've heard me say, it's like the automobile, the train, and the plane invented simultaneously. And it just, I mean, it's changing the world as we speak. Tucker Carlson is going to be on not network television tonight, interviewing one of the four or five most prominent political and global figures on the planet. I mean, would you agree that Putin right now is probably one of the five or at least five or six most consequential figures on the planet yeah, today? Course, yeah. I mean, it's not CBS, it's not ABC, it's not NBC. It's a guy with a podcast and a guy with a digital town square, and they will probably shatter records. Now, there will probably be, I wonder if Vegas has an over-under. I mean, they probably do. And if they didn't, they'd give you one. If you called Vegas today, right now, and said, do you guys have odds on the over-under of viewers that Tucker's interview with Putin will have, they would say yes or no. And if they said no, how much are you willing to bet? $5 million? We'll give you some odds. So Let me call you right back in 10 minutes and they'll go through whatever they go through, and they'll come up with some, uh, some number, and you can bet over or under on how many views to Tucker Carlson that has nothing to do with legacy media, nothing to do with newspapers, nothing to do with television networks, nothing to do with the traditional way we've disseminated um, information. That is the conventional wisdom that I'm talking about, and some people still put stock. I mean, it amazes me how many people out there will try to prove a, prove a point to a conservative by posting an article from the New York Times. That's bizarre to me. I mean, what bubble do you live in? Or, I mean, I get this to be a lot. A liberal friend of mine will send me an article from CNN. I've normally read the article, but in the event I have not, I send back CNN, lol. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's some of these people, it takes a little courage to not buy into conventional wisdom. And people today don't tend to be. Very, very um, courageous. So, yeah, Craig Newmark is the rascal (laughs) that, that, that destroyed the economic pillar of print media and began this decentralizing of the media. Because if you think about it, guys, if there is no other way to market your products and print media maintains that economic ability, I mean, they're still a big deal. I mean, they're still, it's still the, the golden rule. Those are the money, you know, the, the money's the goal. Those are the gold rules. Um, but all of a sudden they saw a serious decline in, in, um, in revenue. Subsequently, a serious decline in subscriberships. I don't think their money drain began by Josh, Rev and Ken canceling our subscription to the Washington post. I think the revenue began to really decline when people started advertising on Craigslist for the washer, dryer, camper sales, set of golf clubs, and not in uh, some of the classified ads, because they've admitted over the years that was our economic pillar. I mean, that, that was what we could count on. We didn't know how many subscribers we could add. We don't know how many people would reach into the box and pay 50 cent a quarter for a newspaper, but we knew we had that revenue stream coming in, and it was big. I mean, it was formidable. I mean, they had a lot of money coming in the door from those 10 or 12 pages in some of these major markets of classified ads, and along come Craigslist, and along comes you know digital marketing and digital um you know the digital marketplace and i just think that is one of the one of the most important moments in this transition from legacy media which i'm referring to as conventional wisdom and this i don't want to be jeffersonian but this self-evident truth <laughs> that is right before our very eyes take a break we'll be back in just a few moments not only did print media have the ability, I mean, that, that was a cash cow. Rev and I were talking about full-page ad, auto dealers, uh, you know, uh, apartment complexes. I, I got no idea. And it would really be per square inch. I mean, what what that, what that page of the paper was worth. But the classifieds were a cash cow. I mean, it was an economic pillar is the word I'm using. I mean, it was a cash cow. Um, I mean, I know they make money on subscribers and they make money on... You know, walking up on the street, buying a newspaper. They make ads on yearly uh, packages, but yeah, but I'm, full
2: page, half page.
0: But the the classified ads page. were the were the cash oh, cow, yeah. wow. and I would imagine per square inch, probably the most profitable part profitable part of the business. But but Rev was talking about there was a day, and I think it's still the case that if you going to like probate court or settle an estate or or some sort of legal matter you're dealing with, apply for a booze license. You gotta go to the newspaper. That's called good lobbying. Cause there's <laughs> no reason that you still have to put that in the newspaper. I mean the few newspapers that are still in business would probably not be in business if the government hadn't, I, I don't know, said it's it's um it's not your option. I mean it's a um it's by the law. I mean the law says that if you're gonna settle this estate, declare bankruptcy, apply for a booze license, you gotta publicly or you gotta make a public notice saying the newspapers, I guess at one point in time were the community's gathering place, so that would be the most obvious choice to go. We've never changed that. I mean if 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 somebody was in the General Assembly today and wanted to do away with that, I think the newspapers that are in business would probably cease to be in business. And I'm not trying to run newspapers out of business, but it's hard to defend that's still the case. That you're still if you're going to apply for a booze license that you're required by law to notify the public by putting it in the newspaper. I mean, I don't know that that's still the law, but I think it is. I mean, I I think it still is. I I think if you are going to apply for a booze license, there's some law still on the books that says you've got to buy an ad in the newspaper, of which if you're under the age of 30, there's a 90% chance... Don't hold me to this number, but it's close. There's a 90% chance that you will never in your life hold a newspaper in your hand. I mean, imagine being in that business. You want to invest in that, Rev? If you're under the age of 30, there's a 90% chance you'll never hold a newspaper in your hand. And you believe Warren Buffett bought what was a media general because he thought newspapers would make a comeback? I mean, it was all about tax write-offs, a way to, to move money around and take advantage of some taxing situation, I would imagine. I mean, he's wealthy enough to be nostalgic. It may have been just his romance with newspapers and, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post. Did he believe that would have been the – does Jeff Bezos believe that the Washington Post is the next Amazon? <laughs> no, he hated Trump, and he wanted to really weaponize the Washington Post in confronting Trump as a candidate you know, painting Trump in a bad light as as a presidential candidate. It's just kind of odd. And I'll check to make sure I'm right on this, but I think there are still laws on the books that say if you're going to apply for a booze license, you must notify the public. And the way to notify the public by the law is to put an ad in the newspaper of which hardly anybody reads anymore. Take a break. Back in a few. Advice
2: or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. Securities are offered through LPL financial member FINRA SIPC. This morning's edition of the Armstrong Minutes is
0: brought to you by the Armstrong Wealth Management Group, dedicated to growing and protecting your wealth. 8436610937. Welcome back. It's Thursday morning. Reggie Armstrong It's seven oh seven. is normally with us. He is again today. Good morning, sir. How are you? Doing well. Good morning. You test friendships when you don't give people fair warning that you may ask a question. The friendship endures and gets stronger or the guy walks (laughs) out of the door and throws a cup of coffee at you. I want to ask Reggie something. We were touching on it um, during the break, and then I'm going to go to some things specifically to talk about. But we, Reggie, yesterday, we went down the road of... Controversial content, right? And aggressive opinion, mm-hmm. and debating the issues and ideas. And I've always, with well, the Rev and I, are always conscious—not you personally, but our advertisers. You're a big yep. part mm-hmm. of our advertising base. You've been with us since about the beginning. And I got to believe that at some point in time, you considered, okay, I mean, I think this show will be popular, but it is going to be a bit controversial. Mm-hmm. I'm not asking as a business owner how do you deal with that yeah. internally, but but I think. I do believe that, that ultimately, I mean, I'm in business. Mm-hmm. I need to be in front of a, a number of people to make it mm-hmm. worth my while. Right. But do you consider how controversial talk radio can be when you make some of those decisions? And how does it affect those decisions?
3: Sure. So, you know, we, we di- when we first started advertising, even before your show came on, you know, uh, when you guys when rush was around and, and you know rush was one of the big reasons we advertised we just knew he had just this huge audience we figured that's that's going to be true in in small town florence as any place else he, he in fact it probably more so he, he and so we said look more con- not you know we've got clients that are you know throughout the the uh, spectrum of politics but generally speaking you know people listen to conservative talk radio i don't know of too many uh liberal talk radio stations that 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 last more than a month so you know so a little bit of controversy is not a bad thing as long as it's not gratuitous as long as it's not controversy just for you know you're offending people just to get the ratings that's not what you do what you do is you don't mind you don't shy away from a fight and is and you're I, most of the time you're pretty polite about it you know, once in a while, Pamplico comes out, but other
0: than that, it's, you know. <laughs> we facilitate <laughs> yeah.
3: conversations. It, so, you know, we've we've never had, you know, we've looked at, we never had an issue. I never got too worried. We, I mean, we got. You, do you remember a number of years ago when 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 they were really trying to attack Rush? There was this what Flake or whatever that big old boy. I mean, and 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 then the the machine started hitting. We were getting things coming in through email. You need to you need to drop get off get off of the you know sponsoring or or supporting Rush and stuff like that. You know we ignore those kind well, of it, things. to
0: to me, you impress me the kind of person. If they're going to try to force your hand, mm-hmm. you'll dig in a little harder. Yeah. I mean, because yeah. you, you, you believe yeah. in that, and I, I don't want to yeah. say it's because you were in yeah. the military, but I think people who <laughs> served in the military don't mm-hmm. tend to back down yeah. when, when people in suits yeah. suggest you do.
3: Yeah. yeah, it's uh, you you've got to you can't just be a willow in the wind. I mean, have a backbone and, you know, don't go out of the way to offend people, but know what you stand for. And, you know, and and for me, you know, we're a Christian firm, we stand for Christian values, but we want to give, you know, it's generic advice where by regulation I can't give, hey, everybody go buy this on the radio. I I, I end up losing my job, but— what we can do is is educate everyone, but a little bit of controversy is it's okay, and and, and people are free to disagree with me. I, you know, we'll talk about some things hopefully in a few minutes sure. other than this, and and if somebody says, well, you know, you, I think you're wrong, Reg, that's okay. Fair
0: that's enough, all. fair enough. Okay, you said little old Florence. Yeah. I grew up in little old South Carolina, mm-hmm. and I woke up one day and it wasn't little old South Carolina anymore. Right. We, we've not gained any land mass, <laughs> but we've gained—excuse my French—I'm Baptist, he's Catholic. We've gained a ass of people. I'm, I mean, there's been a a buttload would be more appropriate—a buttload of people have moved from places yep. not native to South Carolina. I yep. actually yesterday in some of our show rev, mm-hmm. I text Jay, Mike, and Philip. Mm-hmm. If you're in the Senate and House, mm-hmm. what do you begin to do preparing? For a state that has seven, seven and a half, eight million yep. people, because that's where we're headed, yep. Reggie. Does net migration mm-hmm. matter in your world?
3: Yeah, it, I mean, it does. I mean, I think I think just the statistics are interesting because we know people are moving to South Carolina. And the questions are, you know, why are people moving? Now, I, I think at the end of the day, for most people, it's economics. At the end of the day, taxes matter. You know, that's why the low tax states such as Florida and Texas pick up a lot. Um, but location also matters some some people say, Hey you know Florida's nice, but you know I don't want it to be eighty degrees all year long uh you know, so they become half backs you know they move down to Florida and they move back to uh to, to South Carolina where they originated in you know in, in new York and uh and then others it's it's politics as you know you know some people are like, okay, I'm tired of this left wing nut stuff and they they move that way so I, I did recently get some statistics can i can I share please, with you I'd love to hear. All right, so i, I these are the top ten. I'll just do the, the top five. I'll do it in reverse. We're going to do kind of the, the David Letterman countdown here. So number five state for migration winners by as a share. This is from July 1st, 22 to July 1st, 23, as a share of their 2023 population. All right, so it's a percentage. I'll, I'll give the raw numbers if that makes any sense. But we'll start. Number five is Florida. Okay. The, the, number four, Tennessee. Number three, North Carolina. Now, this one's interesting. Number two, Delaware not sure why anybody wants to move to Delaware uh, but anyways and number 1 South Carolina as a percentage of population raw numbers number 1 you know as Florida at 194,000 and some change the last 12 months uh Texas at 186 but we're You know, and then North Carolina number three at 97, but we're at 82,000. So in raw numbers, we're number four, but number one as a percentage. Um, Now, the the losers aren't too surprising. You know, New York lost the most as a percentage. Then California, Hawaii, Alaska, and Illinois, raw numbers, California, and then then New York. Um, But then you go since April 1st of 2020, I guess they had nothing to do during the COVID lockdowns. Might as well start counting people then. And, you know, and so... For the last basically three years, the net numbers, the, the number one as a percentage is Idaho, 5.3%. Now, it's only 104,000, but 53 Number two, South Carolina. We've gained 4.6% of our population in the last three years, and that's 248,000. Even raw numbers, that's also number four. I mean, you got Florida at 818, Texas at 656,000, then you get North Carolina at 310, and then it's us at 248. So that's pretty impressive. Um, but I think the most – when you look at it economically, you know, you know, the free market still matters. So the most fun statistic – and, if, and I'll, I'll close on this unless you have other questions – is the U-Haul rental comparison, how much it costs. I'm going to give you two examples. So uh, <laughs> like Rush used to do. Um, you know, so here's, here's the number one example. Okay, if you – my daughter lives down near Naples, Florida. So if you're moving from New York to Naples – Uh, A U-Haul is going to cost you $5,712. But if you're moving from Naples to New York, it's only (laughs) $1,429. Wow. (laughs) The the greatest disparity is you're sitting there in San Francisco, and you're just tired of of the doo-doo in everywhere, and you're ready. So you're moving to Boise, Idaho, $4,325. If you're in Boise, Idaho, and you're like, I've got to live in San Francisco— 674
0: bucks. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, those... But that's the market at work, right?
3: Absolutely. That tells you where the numbers are. Very few people are moving to San Francisco from Boise. And a ton are moving the other way
0: opposite. Well, and I would imagine that means you need to be more consistent because, I mean, you you tell people who you are and what you do. Mm -hmm. And we have this shtick at the end. You give your website, your phone number. But genuinely, there's a pretty good chance... That somebody not from here has moved here, absolutely. and aren't aware of yeah, you and yeah, what you do,
3: absolutely. And then that's part of this radio. I think this you, the brilliance of your show and everything. They they're on their way to work. You know, they just got here. They they now work at Otis. They got moved from another planet, Otis or wherever. And all of a sudden, they're listening to you know to Ken and and the Rev. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, okay. And then they talk to somebody at the plant. Oh yeah, I, we use Reggie and, and, and Armstrong Wealth. Or and then next thing you know, a conversation starts. We, you know, we had a call the other day. How'd you hear about Radio, you know. So,
0: thanks for the partnership, guys. No, we really yes, appreciate it. I yep. mean, that sincerely yep. appreciate you. Um, not just trusting in us, but 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 publicly speaking mm-hmm. about uh, the partnership. Early, sure. and like you said, yeah. from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, Reggie was here when we didn't know where this. Thing well, I mean, was I mean, and I'll never forget that because you and I. I mean, I, I told Rev Reggie. I said, I said, Rev, here's what I know. I'll be here every day, and I'll be here on time. Mm-hmm that's the only promise I can make you because I don't have any guy. I mean, we sat in the corner of the other studio and I basically read some of the newspaper. Yeah. We're talking about newspaper a second ago. Yeah, it was your show. And, break. And, and here we are 12 years later blessed. And I mean yeah. that sincerely, but, but blessed, not just with listeners, but with partners and sponsors like yep. Armstrong Wealth. So, Reggie, here's your state. Ready? <laughs> if somebody wants to reach out to Armstrong Wealth and do business, how does that how do they start? Sure.
3: Give us a call, 843 292 9997 You can check us out at ArmstrongWealth.com or come to the financial district at 1807 West Evan Street, Sweet
2: A. Appreciate you. Thanks. This Thursday's edition of the Armstrong Minute is brought to you by the Armstrong Wealth Management Group at 1807 West Evan Street in Florence. Opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. Securities are offered through
0: LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Breeze, good morning. You're on the air. Hey, guys.
4: I watch a lot of historical documentaries, and I was watching a thing on Alexander the Great. I've seen a bunch of them. But I was listening to these historians, and this was 334 B.C., around that area. And they were talking with absolute certainty that they knew everything that he had said, done, knew everything about his love life, do conversations that occurred, you know, And they they were presenting it as fact that these same people will take the Bible. and call it a fairy tale. But I'll tell you, I got to thinking when this started, I talked about this whole cathedral thing started. And I would say it started with Jesus Christ, because when Jesus was preaching, who became, who was he preaching against often? It was the ruling elite.
0: It was authority. I mean, Jesus was challenging authority at every turn. And,
4: ri- and rich people, kid. You know what I'm saying? Just, you know, rich people can't have a, will have a tough time getting into heaven. And then these these rich elitists and the authority, you know, the heads of the Jewish church, you know, the Pharisees and so forth, and even the Roman, um, the Roman government and so forth, they said this could be a real threat because the peasants, the great unwashed, could rally around this guy, and then we would lose our power. So what they finally figured out to do was, well, wait a second. Why don't we control Christianity and call it religion? So then you get the Catholic Church. You get the Church of England, where you have the kings controlling the church. And then you have the pope and these people, they call it religion. So then the Protestant thing came along. But also, if you think about it, so then again, you know, when you look at who really controls a lot of the churches, well, it's usually the richest guy in the church, right? <laughs> I mean, think about it. You know, when you go, you can go to the Baptist church, well, who has the most sway with the preacher? Well, usually it's the guy that gives the most money to the preacher. Usually. I'm not saying all over that, but I'm just saying is the organized religion a lot of times almost will work against the poor working man. So you got to be very careful with all of this, but all of this started with Jesus. It started with Jesus, the greatest radical that ever that ever there, there, there was and, there, and still is. You know, just thought I would throw that in
0: on. The yeah, the greatest on. radical. I mean, no doubt about it—a zealot, a radical, um, a counterculturalist. Um, but the Son of God. You know, and that gave him a little advantage over over the rest. Um, I want I want to. I want to stay in this lane for a second. I want to get back. And let's go down the road together of, in America's best days, authority lost more than it won. That sounds weird, but stick with me, and I want to kind of elaborate. I mean, this is not about, I mean, we've already talked about polls and presidential campaigns and what we think might happen or might not happen. This is kind of getting the weeds of, I don't know, the 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 psyche of America. Take a break. Back in a few 843-661-0937 is the number we got some of these embedded features that are routineish in our um, delivery of opinion. I didn't say news. I said delivery <laughs> yes. of opinion. I mean, we'll get a little newsy every now and then, but the majority of what we do is uh, speculative opinion, what we believe to be true, what we think to be true. The one thing that I, I will give you my word on, if I have an opinion, I didn't pull it out of thin air. I mean, I just think I owe you better than that. I've never, ever, ever Profess to be journalistic in nature. I get it right sometimes. I get it wrong other times. Uh, I gave an opinion about Haley. I think she'll do a little better in South Carolina than some of the polls are indicating or some of the uh, public sentiment suggest. But it's not an opinion out of thin air. I mean, there's something inside of me that says, for whatever reason, Nikki's going to do a little better in South Carolina. Newsflash, you ready? She ain't winning the Palmetto State. I'll assure you with that. I just don't know that South Carolina will watch one of their own fail as miserably as the public in America seems to believe will be the case. I have no idea. I mean, I told Rev during the break yesterday, there's no analytic, no data. In fact, the analytics and data suggest something other than that. I mean, the morning consult poll, the most recent poll is Trump at 68%, Haley at 31 Nikki got 30, 43% in New Hampshire. I think she may match that. I don't know why. It's defying the odds and logic, but something tells me that the people of South Carolina are not going to let one of their own fail as miserably as 65-35. John Decker's with us, great televisions, senior national editor, White House correspondent. Um, John is also an attorney. That helps us this morning. John, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Ken. Hope you're doing well today. We are doing well. So you are at the Supreme Court, is that right?
5: I am on my way to the U.S. Supreme Court, but I'll be in the Supreme Court for those oral arguments today uh, concerning that decision by the Colorado Supreme Court to remove Donald Trump's name from the election ballot.
0: So, so John, what is, at, what is legally the argument? I mean, from the, from the, from the layperson's perspective, I mean, a non lawyer would say, well, let, me let the people of Colorado decide who they want to vote for. Don't take the guy's name off the ballot. But there's a legal argument. What exactly is the legal argument?
5: Well, this all has to do with one section of the Constitution. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, it's called the Insurrection Clause. It prohibits any individual who's engaged in insurrection, who's sworn an oath to the Constitution from forever holding public office again. And that's what the Colorado Supreme Court has already determined, that Donald Trump uh, violated the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, and they have determined that, as a result, he is not eligible to be on the election ballot, either for its primary or for the general election. Uh, That's the primary issue before the Supreme Court today, uh, and it's going to be very interesting. I would expect that oral arguments will last uh, pretty long, 90 minutes for each side. Uh, So that means we're uh, not going to see daylight out of the Supreme Court until around 1230 or so this afternoon.
0: But, John, he can be deemed an insurrectionist without ever having been charged for insurrection
5: well that i think is the, the the crux of this issue and i think that's the biggest problem as it relates to the action taken by colorado donald trump as you point out ken he's never been charged with insurrection he's never been in char- charged with inciting an insurrection he's never been convicted of either of those crimes and for that reason uh, i believe that the supreme court is going to ask a lot of skeptical questions uh, regarding the uh, petitioners in this case, who want to see Donald Trump's name removed from the ballot, about whether or not Donald Trump received due process in taking this remarkable, unprecedented action that Colorado has taken. John,
0: I want to get into the weeds with you for a second, and I'd love to get your opinion on this. We got textualists, originalists. I mean, there they, there are people that interpret the Constitution to mean one thing; others believe it's a living, breathing document. The amendment in question. Was about former Confederate soldiers and officeholders who actively rebelled against the United States. How much does that matter? And how much conversation do you think we'll have about the place and time of which the 14th Amendment was adopted?
5: Oh, that is very important. And, you know, it's very important for those justices who would describe themselves as originalists. And so you're going to get uh, questions. Uh, being asked of the lawyers for both sides about the history of this section of the 14th Amendment, why it was authored, uh, why it was inserted into the Constitution, uh, and whether it has relevance to today's world, whether it has relevance to what happened on January 6th of 2021.
0: That'll be a very fascinating argument. As much as I don't believe Trump's an insurrectionist, I don't believe he has unlimited immunity. What do you make of the recent decision regarding presidential
5: immunity or not? And to what
0: what extent that does
5: go? Well, I I agree. I was in the court. I was in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals for that hearing. It doesn't surprise me in terms of the decision by that three-judge panel. I thought it was a very strongly worded opinion that was unanimous, delivered by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And I'll tell you something, Ken, I don't believe the Supreme Court's even going to take up this appeal. Donald Trump has every right to appeal uh, any decision that is handed down. But there's no obligation on the part of the Supreme Court to actually take up the appeal. And I don't think they will. I think that they do not want their docket inundated this term with Trump case after Trump case after Trump case. And this opinion was written in such a way that I believe all nine justices essentially will be comfortable with that opinion.
0: Does that help expedite the trial, John? Do we have some sort of trial? Because I think the Trump team, it's obvious what they're doing, delaying, 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 which, I mean, if you were Trump's lawyer, that'd probably be the advice you'd give to, to Donald Trump. Let's get this thing after the election. Does the decision on immunity affect the timeline of a potential trial before uh, the November election?
5: It does. Uh, that's why that decision by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals was such bad news for Donald Trump. Uh, if indeed what I expect will happen, that is, The Supreme Court declines to hear the appeal. That means that the federal district court judge, Tanya Chuckin can can then schedule that trial date for that case involving election interference. And I've always believed, I believe I've said this on your show many times before, Ken, I've always believed that that case will actually commence and could actually conclude before the Republican National Convention in mid-July.
0: Well explained. John, thank you for your time. It's a fascinating day. Uh, enjoy yourself. I got to believe you're kind of like a kid in a candy store um, today. <laughs> I hear the excitement you in your it. voice. Thank you for letting us kind of have a um, a look-see inside the belly of that beast. Thank you very much, John.
5: Thanks, Ken. Have a great day. That's.
0: All, I mean, I'll tell you guys, that's kind of interesting. A lawyer who spent a, a career as a, you know, a member of the White House press corps uh, coming on a local radio, for whatever reason, I got no idea why in the world John continues to come on, but he does. I mean, we're not, we're not moving the national media We don't set the national discourse, but we become friendlies of John. And he texts rev occasionally about where he is and what Mm -hmm. he's doing. And I know guys that he is, uh, dare I say tainted, (laughs) you know, by being somewhat of an insider. I mean, he can't help but see the world a little bit differently when you make a living in DC, when you've been a part of, you know, keeping tabs on the machine and, and you're part of the machine. I mean, you know, but, but I think it, um, John Decker provides our listeners with something that there's no way in the world I could. I mean, I can give you a lot of opinions, and I think I've got some of these things figured out somewhat, but Decker can tell you up close and personal. Now, does he have an animus to Trump? I think at times you'll see that, but he's probably been conditioned to respect the institutional and 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 legacy way of doing things, and Trump is not that. Uh, unique disruptor is what we've kind of... um. You know, uh, what did we say yesterday, Rev? Uh, establishment normalcy or unique disruptor. I mean, forget Haley and Trump for a second. I think voters are motivated by either the belief that we need to get back to some sort of establishment normalcy or let's continue with this unique political disruptor. I mean, it, there there is great contrast in Haley v. Trump. Let's go to the phone. Jeff and
2: Chesterfield. Hey, Jeff, you're on.
4: Hey, good morning. How y'all doing this morning? I just want to say that if they can charge Donald Trump with a crime that he's
6: never been convicted of, and and do this,
4: then uh, if you ever
6: stepped in a pile of stinking hot dog crap, and, and what does it smell like? That's what this smells like. And and my challenge, my my question is this: If Donald Trump committed insurrection, what about Joe Biden letting all these illegal uh, uh, aliens and these Ill- illegal? Terrorists in our country, which will, like Donald Trump said, there's going to be something, something's going to happen. I mean, it's just it's just a matter of time. What is that about destroying your country? You talking about destroying the country? That right there will do it. That'll do it. That will be chaos. I just can't believe how they're attacking this man. I think he's the only one that, that really has, has got the best interest of this country, uh, country in mind. And uh, I'll let y'all uh, comment on that. Thank
0: you. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate that. Jeff's a little fired up this morning. Um, not going to the Supreme Court. John Decker is. Jeff is not going uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court. I was thinking about this riding over this morning. We've got the, the Senate in a controversial place. I mean, you've got Langford and McConnell and Schumer, and they hammered out a, a deal. Not a good deal for the American people, but they hammered out a deal. And the Republicans, for the first time in a long time, rev of the Senate, not the House. Somebody asked me yesterday, well, why is the House more in line with its constituents? I am mean, at the gym yesterday, a guy stopped me and said, hey, man, you keep up with this stuff. Why does the House tend to react and respond to the, the, the will of the voter and the Senate doesn't? It took me about one second to say one runs every two years, one runs every six years. I mean, the Senate can give you time to forget and forgive and move along. The House can't. I mean these cats in the house are running every 2 years. I mean you put give them a stamp of approval or disapproval every other year? That senator can do things against the will of its voters and and you know try to make it up They've over time over, over it time. It I mean it's yeah. it's a 6 year term and that's what the founders intended. I mean they wanted to be kind of a, a contrast of one another. But I was thinking about the, the immigration bill and why Joe Biden is not out publicly trying to sell this thing. I mean, when the presidents find, historically, when presidents find themselves in this fix, want something done, need a deal done, you go to Capitol Hill and you talk with Republican leadership, you talk with Democrat leadership, you tell them where you stand, you add something or take something. I mean, there's a negotiation that goes along because Biden is incompetent. He's not able to go to the Capitol and sit down with leadership of both parties and say, look, you voted this thing down, why? I mean, can we make it better? Can, can, we got to get this thing in the House, and those guys run every two years, and, and they got to answer to their voters, and that Trump guy's got a big hold on that base, man. I understand that. Let's work together and get a good immigration bill. I mean, that's what presidents do. That's when you earn your keep, and that's what American government's about. I mean, it really is. I mean, Ken doesn't get immigration the way he wants it. Josh doesn't. Dave doesn't. I mean, we got 435 people who have a seat at the table, and they make the sausage. But when, when the president finds himself in a fix, he goes to Capitol Hill and he has a press conference and he meets with leadership in the House and the Senate and they resolve some of the difference. Or they don't. Or they don't. And it doesn't move. Biden is incapable of doing that. And that's scary that at this moment in time when the president should rise and go to the Capitol and deal with Speaker um, Johnson, And deal with the Republicans who run every day and say, look, guys, I know where you are. I mean, I understand your bases, but they're they're agitated. They they resent government. I respect that. And I'm not here to hurt you. I'm here to let's let's work through this thing together. If I got to take that Ukrainian funding out of this thing, tell me. I mean, if I'm president, if I got to take Ukrainian funding out of it and make it a standalone, I'm the president. I'll make it happen. Can you guys vote on $20 billion in border security? That's what presidents do. But this president is incompetent and significantly impaired. Well, he, and know, how that doesn't scare people is beyond belief. You have to cut him a little slack. I mean, he's busy meeting with the French president who died in the mid-90s. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah. So there's that. He has these um, extraterrestrial powers where he <laughs> has seances with dead former French, French presidents. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I'm going to go back to this. And I want to get some input from Josh here. You ready? So, Josh, is America better? I mean, I know what answer you're giving me because you're working at a conservative radio show. I mean, you're unlike most 25-year-olds. You are—you um, haven't been indoctrinated by the um, by the authoritarians. So, here's my question of you: um, Is America better when authority loses more or less than 50 percent?
1: Hmm. Depends on the authority. I I would say in general, I'm talking about in general, in the current state, I'd say America's better off when they lose. Okay. why? Because the authority is evil. You believe that? Yeah. Whether they know it or not, I, I think that they're wrong at the at the most. I'll say that they are wrong. What they're doing is bad for the nation. So when they lose, it's good for the nation.
0: Do you believe that the reason the majority of Americans have accepted the will of the authorities is because, and I'm going back to Mellencamp's song, you know, I fight authority, and authority always wins. I mean, that's kind of a cliche, but it's true. I mean, it is. I mean, try to fight authority. I mean, I've done it. Never won. You never win. I don't care how right you are. I don't care how fair it is. You're not going to win. I mean, they've stacked the decks. But here's the problem, Josh, and you're not there yet, but you will be. And I want to give you fair warning. There will be a point in your life that the authorities have so coerced you that you've got too much to lose by opposing the authority. To me, that's the worst of America. I mean, I understand if your genetic makeup, uh, you know, you're a little bit of a uh, You ready? I mean, I, I think we said this one already. I mean, America, I mean, there's a lot of ways to compartmentalize Americans. Over here, you've got... um. I mean I, I know we can say this word I'm not doing this for effect please under I just think these are the most appropriate words and it's a little bit I mean it borders on profane Reds like well, come on man really <laughs> um I mean in in one corner you got the bad asses in the other corner you got the candy asses <laughs> and the bads tend to be more willing to stand up to authority and the candies are like nah man I, I don't want any part of that I mean I don't want I don't want to fight the uh, the FBI I don't want to fight I don't want to fight law I don't want to do it. Ah, no, the IRS, ah, no, no, thank you. But, but somebody has to at some point in time. But, but the, ah, the nasty part of this is when, I mean, the candy is going to believe in conventional wisdom. It's easy. I mean, they, they, they've got a job. The job requires them to get along and go along and not rock the boat and life's pretty good. I mean, if they aren't careful, they'll get two more raises at work. They got health care for life i mean they got the benefit of being in the machine they benefit fundamentally i mean i know people like this i know you do rev fundamentally i know where they land i know where they come from i know what they were raised as they don't like government but they've gotten themselves dependent on a livelihood that requires them to not resist i can't challenge authority man i got too much at risk i'm thinking about doctors during covid i mean i would never call a name but there were so many doctors that, that told me at the gym, at a restaurant, wherever, at a ball game, hey, man, I listen to you in the morning, and you're not medically trained. You're, you're not a virologist, but you're on to something. I mean, they've corrupted this business. I just can't say anything. I mean, it's too risky for me to take on the authoritarians of health care. I mean, Pfizer in Washington decided this, and I'm a pawn in their game, and I accept it. I don't like it. But what do I do? Where do I go? How do I make a living? And, and that's the nasty part of America, re- Josh. And that's the evil part you're talking about. When someone who fundamentally opposes the authority of government but have so much depended upon being subservient to the authority of government that they're unwilling to put there, I understand it. I mean, I would tell every doctor. I would tell them every single one. I get it. I mean, I, I wouldn't do it either i mean i wouldn't put my job at risk i wouldn't put my career at risk i wouldn't put my livelihood at risk my family's education you know uh my, my bills getting there's no way i would take that risk so i'm going to stand up and get pfizer in the government and my family and i live in a car no thank you i'm not i'm not doing that i'm not going to get blackballed from medical because i had questions but america at its best is when those doctors were allowed to freely express themselves without fear of consequence. And your dad's a doctor. And I don't wanna know where your dad stands, don't need to know where your dad stands, but it, it upset me when, when some of these people who had gone to college, gone to med school, uh, took on enormous amounts of debt responsibility, trying to do the best they know how at being medically trained professionals. And along comes an edict an order from the federal government, and you kinda of scratch your head and say, I don't know, man. I mean, something, something inside me says we rush this. Something inside me says we're not being completely honest with the public. But for me to be completely honest with the public, I've got to question these authorities. And if I question these authorities, I get blackballed. And I can't take that chance. That's the nasty part of authority. And that's why I believe the more authority loses, the better off America is. The more we advance liberty and and, 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 and freedoms and, and human rights and all these things that we profess to so strongly believe in, I mean, I I question this. Do the authoritarians really believe in liberty, freedom, and human rights? Or do they believe in authority and control and influence and power and wealth? I mean, I think that's what we've got to ask ourselves. And conventional wisdom says that we're the good guys and Putin's the bad guy. I mean, I bumped into two or three people yesterday. I can't believe Tucker's going to Russia. Why? I asked a question yesterday. Still haven't got an answer. Still haven't got an answer from some some of the smartest listeners radio has. I asked a question yesterday. Whatever your opinion is of Ukraine and Russia, who did you trust to form that opinion? We all have an opinion of the situation in Russia and Ukraine. Josh has an opinion. Rev has an opinion. I have an opinion. The listeners have an opinion. The opinion you have was shaped by whom and why. Who did you trust? To tell you, this is the right thing to do in regards to Russia and Ukraine, and nobody's answered that question. I think it's a very fair question. I think it's a, a provocative question. I think it lets us inside the mind of a of an American, kind of a political consumer. I mean, the Seinfeld watchers going like Ukraine, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think they're having a squabble, but they always fight in Eastern Europe. I mean, those, as Pin said, those damn expansionist Russians. I mean, they're always trying to take over over territory. How is this the beginning of time. Eight four three six six one 0937, back at a few. 843 661 0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. That's
2: a good one. I like it.
0: That's a good one.
2: I like it. You should have seen the look on Ken's face. He was about to take a drink of his Celsius. I'm, I'm he put it down and said, Really? I'm good. You may be in trouble, Josh. This I'm is sure.
0: Celsius and Aquafina. It's actually um orange sickle. Now, now, being a gamecock, orange sickle is my least favorite flavor. <laughs> but when you mix it with uh, with the Aquafina water, we, we're out of life water, so I got some Aquafina water here. But um, and our, our friends at Pepsi keep us uh, abundantly supplied with our um our needs and wishes for this early morning attempt at radio <laughs> brilliance. Let's go to the phone, Royal Rev of Radio, Jay and Nichols. Hi, Jay, you are on the air. Hi, guys. Uh,
7: calling about you. Uh, Want to know where I found my opinion on uh, Ukraine? Uh, I studied the internet. I listened to some of the uh, foreign news broadcasts from Poland, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, uh, the BBC, things of that nature. Not just what we get from CNN, NBC, even Fox, but, you know, what other people think. And a lot of it I got from what the Ukrainians themselves are saying, you know. Uh, we've got to look at this one sort of somewhat similar to uh, 1812 in America. Uh, Russia came in, was going to take their capital, like the British took our capital, and a lot of people are saying, you know, let's let's get peace at any cost. But if you were American in 1812, it would have been, let's get victory at any cost. We hadn't needed by a foreign power trying to take over our country. That's the same thing that's happened in the Ukraine. You know, they're being invaded by a foreign country trying, you know, they made four or five attempts on their president's life with their ex nas soldiers. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how you feel, but I, I listen to you all the time, and you seem to put ukraine down
0: constantly i would be a hard no on additional funding to ukraine i would be an absolute no no more money for ukraine there's no accounting i mean we, we don't know what they're doing with the money and taxpayers deserve to know so i would be an absolute hard no i believe that ukraine deserves to be free i believe that putin is a dictator but i don't believe american taxpayer dollars not a single other dollar should be sent to ukraine
7: I don't believe that money should be sent to Ukraine for their uh, costs and stuff like that. But I don't see the problem with sending them weapons. Those are easy to account for. You know, There's a serial number on each and every one of Joe, them. Joe, you can hang on.
0: we got to take a hard break, top of the hour. But I'll be welcome to let you continue on the other side. Back in a few. You know, one of the interesting political exercises that you and I will probably live long enough to see, Rev, Mm -hmm. I mean, Josh is highly educated. He's a bit cosmopolitan. I doubt he spends, I mean, he'll have a cup of coffee in South Carolina. He'll probably end up in Manhattan or Boston or one of these, um, one of these liberal metropolitan havens, but you and I are stuck. I mean, we're stuck in the, in the good old South (laughs) And, and I believe, and I, and I mean this sincerely, if we had a visionary governor. And I'm not saying Henry's not, but Henry's a bit older. If we had a younger Republican nominee, and I'm saying this because I know he's on the line, if we had a younger, visionary Republican nominee that as part of his platform, or her platform for that matter, talked about a South Carolina with 8 million people, energy grids, abolished state income tax rates, investments in infrastructure, beach renewal, whatever. I mean, there's a multitude of, you know, kind of aspects of that. But we were stuck on about three and a quarter million people for a long time. And in a nanosecond, we went to five and a half million. And I'm looking at some of the macro trends. We're going to end up probably with seven, eight million people in South Carolina. Not overnight, but you've got to begin building. And the General Assembly has to consider, you know, what, does the, what are the electrical needs, the infrastructure needs? Um, I mean, I just think a governor, a visionary governor, could sell that message differently than historically governors have run for office in South Carolina. South Carolina GOP Chairman Drew McKissick is with us. Drew, good morning. How are you? Man, I'm
8: doing well this morning.
0: You you buying any of that or not? Or is that just radio show fodder?
8: (laughs) Well, no. I mean, it's definitely true. We got a lot of people moving to South Carolina, especially away from blue states. Uh, That's evident, especially along the coast, but even in the upstate. Uh, You know, I get uh, new voter registration reports which break down people who've moved from other states based on their partisanship. I get that about every three months, and I can tell graphically, visually, county by county. You know, we have net Republicans or Democrats moving into this county or the other. Uh, But on a total population base, I mean, electricity certainly is going to be an issue. Uh, And actually, we had a state party legislative reception last night, and that was one of the things that the Speaker of the House mentioned to some of the folks that were there. Uh, that they want to focus on. Uh, you know, look, I mean, it, w- whether it's, uh, you know, fossil fuels or, you know, uh, uh, unicorns, rainbows and uh, whatever, you, you name it, I mean, all the above, we need more energy, and that's the power of the economy, and that's to be able to take care of the people that are here. You know, we don't need to be like these states that have the, the rolling blackouts or brownouts and so forth. So uh, we got time to do it, but, but you're right. That's the kind of thing that we do need to focus on here in the future.
0: Drew, when you look at the people moving in, from your perspective – it looks to me like we're getting redder and redder. It's not as, I mean, I said on a podcast or Newsmax, Newsmax called and asked us to, to do a little bit about South Carolina primary. It's not as mm-hmm. Jesus-y as it once was, but it looks to be as conservative as ever. Is that fair? Not quite as evangelical? Well, I,
8: well it depends on what states are coming from, because different states have different you know traditions, certainly. Uh, and different areas of the state seem to be a, a magnet for some of those different Types of folks, you know, I had someone from the governor's office a couple of years ago tell me you could take a a map of South Carolina and sort of draw a line about, say, 30, 40 miles above Charleston. Everything above that line to North Carolina with blue collar retirees and below that line with white collar retirees. You know, maybe that's anecdotal, I'm sure, but probably a good bit of truth to that. Uh, And in terms of the partisanship, though, um, it's true that red states are getting redder. Blue states are getting bluer in the sense of people with money and means that, you know, we're just just bailing out. I mean, you know, California, a lot of those folks moving to Nevada, Arizona, Texas, uh, and so forth, Uh, Wyoming, uh, Utah, Idaho, places like that. Uh, You know, on our coast, you got a lot of folks, you know, who are coming from, you know, Ohio, uh, New Jersey, New York, uh, Pennsylvania, and so forth, moving here, uh, Florida,
0: et cetera.
8: Uh, That's real. That's happening. Uh, and it's, it's picked up the pace, especially since COVID, uh, in, in a big way.
0: Let's put our partisan hat down for a second. It's harder for you than it is for me. And, but <laughs> but you're, you're in the business of being a partisan, and I'm in the business to some degree of being a partisan, and I accept that. But, but the, the, the issue that I have and the concern that I and I know enough about it to be dangerous, the concern I have, I presided over the Senate, and I started looking at some of the same numbers you're talking about, and it dawned on me, that because of the Sims case and one man, one vote, we don't have one county, one senator any longer. And it looks like, Drew, sooner than later, you're going to have about five counties with sixty percent of the Senate representation and that imbalance of government. In other words, a senator from Maury County, I mean he cares about Pamplico in Florence, but it's not he's not voted back in office by those those people. And I'm I'm concerned that we're going to have Lexington, York, Greenville, Charleston, and O'Ree dominating the Senate in a way that is politically unhealthy?
8: I'm not going to disagree with you on that. Just philosophically, I mean, first off, going back to the decision you're talking about, that Supreme Court case back in the 60s, I think it was, uh, which uh, famously I think someone said citizens vote not trees or some quote to that effect. That would have been the Chief
0: Justice of the Supreme Court.
8: There you go. Uh, You know, I mean, well, it just runs totally in the face of the way our U.S. Constitution is set up. You know, I mean, Idaho gets just as many senators as California. South Carolina gets as many as New York. But then you have the House that's divided up by population. The whole point is to promote, uh, one, protection of of smaller areas versus big areas, uh, majorities against minorities, if you will. That's the purpose of the Senate. And, you know, I, I think, in my opinion, it should have been, should be, the same way at state level. You know, but the problem is, you know, once one individual or a certain group of people get political power, it's kind of hard for it to get readjusted in the other direction. And I think that's an unfortunate reality.
0: Have you done any projections? I'd be interested and curious on what the, the makeup would look like if we had one County, one Senator, I mean, if we had, I have not, I, th- that I would have be not interesting, but I mean, it would be an academic exercise. It's all hypothetical. I think it'd be very interesting. Sure. Um, And Well, I I,
8: I could say this, uh, you know, in terms of where uh, you're thinking about partisanship for a minute. You know, certainly we wouldn't be at a 30 to uh, 16 Republican and Democrats in the state Senate. But uh, you can make a real good case that we would be in a majority right now, I think, because it'd be fairly recent. But still, look again, we've talked about this before. The huge changes we've seen in the last eight years in rural areas around the state with folks who are conservative Democrats and independents coming out and voting Republican in many cases straight ticket. Uh, I mean, places like, you know, you watch this, places like Arlington County, uh, places like uh, we carried, you know, Chesterfield County, you know, for a Republican for president. Um, you know, Dillon County, other places like that, where we've seen a lot of growth. Uh, you know, so, uh, again, it's an academic exercise, as you say, but uh, it, it would definitely not be. A uh, dire situation for Republicans,
0: in my opinion. Uh, you, you'll do a good job of deflecting this, but I'm ask anyway. Um, I said yesterday, <laughs> I said yesterday that something tells me, and I've never been the analytics guy. I mean, I, I know analytics. I understand data, math is math. The person with the most votes, I get all that. I understand that. I don't discount dispute polling. I think some are more accurate than others. The Morning Consult had a poll out: Trump at 68, Nikki at 31. Washington Post fifty eight thirty two, Emerson fifty four twenty five. Something internally, Drew tells me it's going to be closer. I, I, I don't know why. I don't have any data. N- nothing I say I can substantiate. But something tells me that this is going to be a closer contest on the twenty fourth than the polling suggests and some of the national pundits believe. And I'm not saying Democrats are going to vote in in, in the Republican primary. My hunch is South Carolinians are not going to let a former South Carolina get embarrassed but so bad. You say what?
8: Well, I say this. I say so far in this nomination contest, we've seen the polls be very accurate. Uh, you know, Iowa is a caucus. The caucuses are notoriously hard to poll. And the polls in Iowa got it right within a point, to point and a half, I believe. Uh, the polls in New Hampshire for the results up there were within the margin of error. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I think I haven't seen anything yet that would make me believe that that's not the case here in South Carolina. What I've seen uh, on the ground, what I've heard anecdotally, uh, the things that I know that's going on, the things that I know that's not going on. Um, yeah, but again, it's, it's not over till it's over. I and mean, people can say what they want to to upholster, but they do have to still get up off the couch and go vote. Uh, You know, and then we saw what we saw Tuesday um, in Nevada, uh, which, you know, really, personally, I think that needs to promote some soul searching in a campaign. Uh, When you have a situation like that, I think it's very embarrassing. Um, I think, uh, you know, whoever whoever in that campaign didn't know that none of the above was an option on that ballot. Whenever they decided to get on that ballot, probably, you know, needs a new job. Uh, it's, you know, wasn't good. It's not a good look. And here's the thing. At some point, every candidate in every nomination contest needs to decide how much further do I go? Am I doing myself more good than harm? Am I doing the party more good than harm at a certain point? And it's a where that line is 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 in a different place in every situation. You know, it's just a moving target. Uh, you know, I think there's a really good case to be made that by the time they count the votes here in South Carolina, um, you know, we're probably at that line. And I think
0: that's I think that's fair. Are you concerned at all that more Democrats than you're comfortable with will vote in the Republican primary?
8: Personally, I'm not. I mean, you know, because of what we've seen in the past, uh, and I am of the opinion, could be wrong, you know, but when you do, uh, you know, you see networks will do exit polls, you know, we've seen them so far. They'll break people down by identified or self-identified Democrats, independents, Republicans, et cetera, and how they voted. It would not shock me to see a greater percentage of any self-identified Democrats who would vote in our primary actually vote for Former President Trump. Uh, There's a lot of conservative Democrats in the state. Like I said, these are people who vote Republican for president in a general election, maybe governor or senator, but then vote Democrat the rest of the way down. I mean, you know, you live there in the PD, you know those type of folks, and those are the folks who have been gradually shifting over to the Republican Party. Those ties with local Democrat officials, you know, that they go to church with, or they know, you know, they might be related to or whatever. Gradually, those ties are breaking. You know, either Somebody decides not to run again, they die, or, you know, or they switch parties. Uh, And it's why I put such an emphasis on switching down ticket Democrats who want to come in, who are conservative and that our other folks in the party want them in, because that's one less reason somebody has not to vote a straight Republican ballot. Those are the type of Democrats, in my opinion, probably going to be the majority of Democrats who may vote in a Republican primary, or especially a presidential Republican.
0: I'll tell you, one, one of the concerns that I still have, and I yell it and scream it and write it in blood, nobody listens to me, but I'm still concerned that the GOP believes that Trump voters are Republican voters. I think they're Republican voters in waiting, but, but I think there's work to be done to convince them folks that they have far more in common with our political ideology and our political beliefs than they do the other side. And if you are ever in a position to make decisions like that, I hope we'll have some sort of a, not necessarily an outreach program. Maybe we call it a baptismal. I mean, maybe <laughs> maybe they have to be, you know, baptized in the name of the, the Republican Party. Um, I can't let you get away without asking you this now. There's a lot of reports out there that Ronald McDaniel is going to resign post-South Carolina primary. You are the co-chair. That means you become the interim chair of the RNC. Your comments regarding that are what?
8: Well, well, first off, don't believe everything you read in the New York Times. That's rule one for politics. You know that. Uh, secondly, uh, yeah, uh, in the case of a resignation of the chair, the co-chair does become temporary chair until we have an election. But look, yeah, the nominee is going to have a lot to say about how this goes. What usually happens is the nominee's campaign sends campaign people into the RNC to work along with the party leadership at the time. So, they might, you know, two people might come in and become deputy chairman to work along with the, the elected chairman. Uh, and they'll come and take over the political department, merge a political field program with the campaigns field program to leverage dollars, et cetera. That happens in every cycle. Uh, what's unusual would be an actual change in actual leadership. I, don't, I can't recall that ever happening, but uh, it may have. Um, you know, So it, it, something happens. It's just a matter of degrees, you know, in terms of uh, what comes over, what changes inside the RNC and so forth. So uh, we do know that, you know, because, again, it's necessary. You want to make sure everybody's on the same page strategically and that you're leveraging your dollars, not duplicating and so forth. So uh, it's just a matter of degrees, and that'll be a a big, big uh, uh, decision on the part of uh, our nominee.
0: Are you ready for that challenge, Drew? Do you embrace that challenge if it were to play out that way?
8: Well, look, I've been working in this for 35 years, and if I didn't enjoy it and uh, hadn't had some success at it, I wouldn't be here.
0: I hope you get a chance, my man. Thank you for joining us.
8: I appreciate you. Take care, sir.
0: SCGOP Chairman Drew McKissick, um, co-chair of the National Party, and there's a report, some of this is like allegations and reporting, that Ronald McDaniel is going to be out as RNC chairman after the South Carolina primary. Drew uh, becomes the chairman of the interim temporary chair. Um, does he sit down with Trump? Does Trump, I mean, there are three names bandied about. There's a, a guy from New York. There's some others out there. Uh, but Drew has been kind of a um, an established hand, and I use that word complimentary, not derogatorily, like I normally use the word, you know, that dadgum establishment. We'll take a break. We'll be back. I think we got a caller that held on, but want to be respectful. Boy, you only get Drew at certain times of the week, and I want to make sure we... Allow him to speak to you um, about what's going on in the RNC. Take a break. Back in a few. I got no idea who the best caller in the history of this show is, but I believe Jay may be the most patient caller <laughs> we've ever had. Um, he waited patiently during the break, and then we had Drew scheduled. I think he's still there. And, um, and I think Jay, don't want to put words in his mouth, he disagrees with some of what I have to say about Ukraine and Russia, and he's certainly entitled um, to say what he feels. So, Jay, are you still there?
7: Yeah, I'm still here. Yeah. Hey, I'll give you a little little background. I'm retired military. Okay. So I follow our military very intently, uh, giving them weapons. Our weapons are serial numbered. We know which ones they were that got sent over there. We know which ones they've got. You know, it's easy to track. That's a simple thing. The other one is we're giving them old weapons. I mean, we haven't made a Stinger missile since 2004, 2005, somewhere around in there. Uh, you know, think about what upgrades we could do to our Stinger missiles. You know, what was your cell phone like in 2004 and
0: 2005? You know, Jay, so is the objective have- from your perspective? Is the objective to defeat Vladimir Putin? Definitely, the objective is for those people to be free to choose what they want and you feel we're right. obligated to that yes i do see Please i just I, I fundamentally is. disagree with you i mean and i and i respect your opinion and i think i've shown I mean, that i respect your opinion but i just don't think we have the capacity to allow people to be free where they aren't at, on our taxpayer dollars i'm sorry i mean I, I know that's kind of an inhumane thing to say i enjoy the rights and freedoms that very few people around the world have ever enjoyed But I don't think I'm obligated to fund people living exactly the same way I do. I I don't either.
7: But we signed an accord with them. We said we would guarantee them their freedom and their independence if they gave up their nuclear weapons and gave them to Russia. We promised them that. The British also did. And the British have stepped up. They started the uh, main battle tanks going over. They started the long-range weapons going over. They sent them uh, the Storm Shadows, and we have to step up too because we promised those people. Would you do what business with a company that promised you something and then reneged on it? No,
0: but but, no, I, but I, I think but I, I think but here's here's where I disagree. Our, our, I think business is building truck beds, selling radio ads. War people die. What are they dying yeah. for? I'm, I'm reading, you're talking about where you're reading, I'm reading a lot of reports all over the world where Ukrainian, the Ukrainian army is going to run out of young people. When they run out of young people, who fights that battle? The American soldier?
7: When they run out of young people, their older people are going to fight. Those people have said that they will no longer ever go back under the Russian tyranny
0: that they were under for decades. But, I mean, I said I wouldn't resign as lieutenant governor of South Carolina. I mean, well, we we, all, we you know. all say things that we end up doing something other than. I mean, you've done it, I've done it, everybody does it. Everybody says, I'll never do this, I'll always do this, a- and we don't. I mean, that history's full of that. I'm just asking a question. The majority of my information that I trust and read, and I'm not talking about People Magazine, and I'm not talking about CNN, they, they have convinced me that the average Ukrainian fighters get older and older and older, and the reason they're getting older is there are no young people left. If all the young um, people get killed in Ukraine, are you willing to send American forces there?
7: That would be a really tough answer. Uh, it would be a really tough answer. Is it a fair I, I question? It is a fair question. Okay. I never, you know, mine is one. The Ukrainians are attriting the Russian military at an ungodly rate. Uh, they've lost over 50% of their armor that they had in storage. They've lost over 50% of their artillery that they've had in storage. They've lost 300 and some odd jets and over 300 helicopters, attack helicopters. They've lost 30% of their naval forces in the Black Sea to a country that doesn't have a Navy. You know, they're, they're doing an outstanding job. They just need the tools.
0: What about what, the, what, what about the American way of life is improved? If, if Putin surrenders and retreats from Ukraine, what changes about my daily life?
7: I, I don't know what changes about your daily life, but what changes about our security is his military is going to take 10 to 15, 20 years to rebuild. I don't think we have to worry about him invading a NATO country now.
0: I don't think he's ever invaded okay. a NATO country, has he? He's. They're the next on the list. But I, mean, but, but I mean, him, as as we speak today, has Vladimir Putin ever invaded a NATO member?
7: No, he hasn't. And, and I hope he never does. But if he does, we're going to have to put boots on the ground. That's mm-hmm. a, we, I, you. you that's, a, that's a politician right there. You let, you let yourself say something but you won't stand up and defend what your country has said
0: no I'm, I'm emphatic i would never i mean i can't speak for the government leader i'm not a government leader there is no way i would have entered into that deal with nato that there is no way that i would have ever signed up to put american soldiers at risk because vladimir putin invades poland and, and i think any americans got to asked are you willing to send your kid to die on the polish russian border i'm not Yes, I am. Okay. Well, I mean, we just have a genuine no, gentleman's I, disagreement. I mean, thank you, Joe. Yeah, I'm, appreciate it. Yeah, and, 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 and I mean, he expressed himself very well. We just have a fundamental disagreement on the role of America on the national stage and the global stage for that matter. Joe said that he's willing for his kid to die on the Polish-Russian border. I am not. And there's no way that as a governmental leader I would ever sign any sort of doctrine that, that would allow an American soldier. And I'm not talking about when America's not attacked, I'm talking about when a NATO nation is attacked, we're going to send American men and women to a land far, far away that may or may not have our security interests at heart. But the one fact remains, Vladimir Putin has never invaded a NATO nation. That is a fact. I mean, there are a lot of hypotheticals of what he could do and what he would do. And he, maybe the next Vladimir Putin, excuse me, the, 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 Adolf Hitler. I mean, you've heard these Hitler. He'll march across Europe as we speak today. Vladimir Putin, it is a fact that he's never invaded a NATO nation. Take a break. Back in a few. I'm not trying to insult anybody, but I do think Joe and my conversation was a reflection on some of what we talked about this morning, the conventional wisdom of the establishment and the unique disruption that I think is required to, to get us back on a chart or course that makes sense. And the reason I say that, Josh, I mean, let's go to the, the border security bill. I um, mean the border security bill has twenty billion of the hundred eighteen billion spent on border security. The other sixty billion Ukraine, uh, twenty billion. Excuse me, uh, I had it written down here. Twenty billion for Israel. Um, about ten billion in humanitarian relief to um, Gaza, West Bank, uh, Ukraine. Uh, Two billion conflict in the Red Sea. Well, there is no conflict in the there's always conflict in the Red Sea. Um, and then five billion Indo. Pacific China. Uh, ah, they didn't say China. I did. Indo-Pacific is code word for, or dog whistle for for China. But conventional wisdom says that America must do more than its part in policing the world. The unique disruptor says, we've done enough of that. We've really done enough of that. Is the world a safer place because America spends nearly a trillion dollars a year on its military-industrial complex. I'm going to ask that question. I mean, if the trillion dollars was well spent and we're getting banged for our buck, China's not a threat. Russia's not a threat. There's always a giant to fight. There's always a boogeyman out there somewhere to be afraid of. There's always a warrior hero to support. Do you really believe in Zelensky? I mean, I'll go on the record. I think he's a con man, I don't think Ukraine is a a democracy. I mean, some of the posts I see on Twitter, you know, uh, I think Tucker said they have presented Zelensky to America as a consumer brand, and you need to buy into this guy. Go check out the history of Ukraine. I mean, do you really believe that Ukraine represents a democracy and it's all about human rights? I'm not saying Putin had a right to invade a sovereign nation. I'm never I mean, because you take a kind of a a contrary perspective to the establishment narrative, you're perceived as a Putin sympathizer or anti-patriotic or you don't support the armed forces. You know how I know I support the armed forces? Because I would never let one die on the Polish-Russian border. I got your back. There's no way that an American soldier will ever die on the Polish-Russian border. That's how much I care about the armed forces. Let's go to the phone.
2: Mark in Branchville listening to WTQS. Hello, Mark.
0: Ken, always a great job. I just, um, just
6: a little off the mark, but I, I like you. I don't know if you ever played it. I think you may have, but, um, if you ever listened to the 1965 commentary by Paul Harvey. Um, if I was the devil, Yes. if you play, play that is all, if, I think if people just listen to that and understand this is right where we at. You know, but um, I don't know if you ever
0: played that one on there or you can play it, but I think that's something that a lot of people love to hear. Yeah, you're interested in sponsoring it. No,
6: I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding, man. Tell
2: me what, Tim, what he nah, I not to do. No, you
0: know I'm joking around. Thank you, man. Appreciate <laughs> appreciate you calling in and appreciate you listening. We're we, having we, all these. We, we, have have, it, uh, we have played it, though. Yeah, we have played it. We may play it, it again. It's been a while. Yeah, we got to find a sponsor. We'll play it again. <laughs> Let's go to the phone.
9: <laughs> Up next is Mike in Darlington. Hello. Uh, good morning, uh, uh uh, Ukraine has a complex uh, history. It's been part of the Russian Empire. It's been part of the German Empire. Uh, I don't know. It might have been part of the Swedish Empire at one time. But uh, the, the, uh, the thing about the situation is there, I remember distinctly when we signed that accord, there was a bunch of debate about uh, Ukraine wanted, uh, since they were separate from the Russians, they wanted to keep uh, their nukes, and we didn't want them to keep their nukes. And uh, we um, we we signed an accord, an international accord, saying uh, we'll guarantee your sovereignty if uh, you'll get, get these nukes and you'll give, give them back to uh, Russia for to be reprocessed repro- and all that. But uh, now we're in a terrible situation. We should have never gotten here. We, we, I, I do not think that that invasion would have ever happened if Trump were at the helm. But we have a zombie as president, and a bunch of people that are foolish and do not un, do not understand the danger of dealing with people like Putin. And it's like a junkyard dog. You can't turn your back on them. They'll bite you in the behind, and uh, that—that's a fact. But I—I uh, I agree with Jay that uh, it's not a good choice. You don't. No one's in any sense ever seen somebody turned into hamburger that wants wants a war. They're, those those guys, I don't know. They're they're whacked out because war is a horrible thing. And the and uh, we but uh, we are faced with a dangerous world and dealing with dangerous people. And if we can just send the Ukrainians weapons, I think that's a good idea. I think we take need some accountants. What we need, some honest accountants is Ukraine corrupt. Oh, yeah. Is Russia corrupt? Oh, yeah. Are we corrupt? Yeah. And and I you're not gonna find a pristine democracy or democratic republic. I I don't know where you would find it. I don't know if there's ever has been one. And but uh it's a dangerous situation with no good choices. But I think we do should keep arming them and but we should keep track of where they're spending the money, paying their pensions Hey, that's not. I don't think that's a good idea. I think uh, sending them some artillery shells and some missiles and uh, rockets and a, th- a
0: few heavy tanks. I think that's a, that's a good investment. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. But I mean, what what is the investment? I mean, what's the return on that investment? I mean, if we send Ukrainians ten-year-old tanks and twenty-year-old missiles, all it does is delay the inevitable. But it does get more Ukrainians killed. Instead of running out of 30-year-olds, they run out of 35-year-olds. And then they run out of 40-year-olds. I mean, it's butchering. And conceptually, guys, and I'm not, I mean, just think of this. I mean, this is probably as philosophical as you can look at the war machine. I mean, there are some Americans, Democrats and Republicans, that have had enough of that. I mean, they've just had enough of these endless wars, these excursions, these entanglements. I mean, it's like, damn. I mean, can we have a little peace in the world? But what is opposite of peace? War. Right? So if you're building war equipment, if you're in the business of fighting war and equipping armies to win wars, why would you want peace? How do you run your business? I mean, if you're in the business, let's pick on Raytheon. Raytheon is a military industrial complex contractor to the nth degree, to the extreme degree. Look at how much money Raytheon spends lobbying Congress. Do you think they're lobbying for peace? I'm not saying people love war. I would never suggest that there are, I mean, there's probably some warm, demented people out there that love war and they get their giggles and kicks off of war. But, but you've built a livelihood dependent upon not having a lot of peace around the world. But I mean, that's the war machine. And we spend a trillion dollars a year promoting peace or we spend a trillion dollars a year equipping an army to win wars. But that that's the concept. So conceptually and philosophically, peace is not good for that business. People getting along is not good for that business. People sitting down and agreeing to disagree and having debate in Ukraine and Russia is not good for that business. And I think you've got to be unbelievably naive to think that some of that doesn't exist. A war machine can't sustain itself if we have global peace and harmony and everybody gets along and when countries invade other countries, you know, that they they sit down and try to negotiate some the history of Ukraine, the history I mean Mike was talking about the history, and I'm not a Putin sympathizer. I'm not a Xi Jinping sympathizer. I mean that's what the media says when you question whether or not to fund the military industrial complex of the American Empire to the degree that really goes back to conventional wisdom. I mean, so many of you are too lazy. I'm sorry. So many of you are too lazy to think outside of conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom is Putin and G are bad and America's good. Really? Well, let's debate that. And I go back to the opinion I have about Ukraine and Russia. If you've got an opinion, was it based on? Joe had a very researched opinion. I respect Joe's opinion. I disagree with it, but I have respect for someone who served in the army or served in some branch of the military and has read and studied and tried to learn and understand and believes this is in America's best interest. I don't agree with him, but but I certainly respect the fact that he's done the work to formulate an opinion that is credible and you can support it in some sort of of debate fashion. But But conceptually and philosophically, what is bad for the military-industrial complex? Peace. Take a break. Back in a few. Josh, jump in here for a second. I guess what I'm arguing is, and I don't dismiss it. I mean, I'm not as, as, as keen on this as some of the hawks are, the Lindsey Grahams of the world, the John McCain's of the world, the Ronald Reagans of the world. I mean, I respect those people that have fundamental disagreements. Global security is not a big priority of mine. National security is what I'm most interested in. And if I were in charge of making those decisions... I mean, I, I just think you can always find another place to go. You can always find another bomb to drop. I mean, there's always a dot to connect to another dot, to connect to another dot, to connect to another dot. Um, I mean, a bit of me, the cynic in me says, did somebody from the military industrial complex reach out to the Biden administration and relax those sanctions so Iran would become empowered? And people would go, yeah, I mean, you've got to watch Iran. I guess we do need to spend another $880 billion dollars on the military-industrial complex. Let's go to the vault. Someone's there.
2: MFR in the PD. Good morning.
6: Good morning. Um, I used to say history started when people were born. I'm starting to change that to when the news cycle changes. You asked a question earlier and yesterday, uh, what formulates people's opinions about the uh, Ukraine-Russia war or whatever. When everybody starts putting little syringes, or Ukrainian flags beside their X account or their Facebook profile, whatever it is, you probably need to start stop and start questioning who is sending that message, is it the Mockingbird media? who 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 is that authority that's behind that, that's driving the narrative? And if you recall, when you had Yanis on the show back during the summer, I believe I was taking the approach that I didn't think it was a good idea then. And back then, that wasn't, a favorable position to be in. Um, I was kind of on the the, the the stand over there in the corner side, but more people have come across and said, why are we spending all this money? And to Joe's point, um, there are serial numbers on that stuff. But we're not just sending stingers. We've been sending javelins, in-laws from Britain, and those javelins have showed up at the border at Texas. We have pictures of it. When the France riots broke out, I've got a picture on my phone. There is a gentleman, well, a whatever you want to call him, an a immigrant walking around with two 240s in the plastic, and you can see the serial number with the barcode from Columbia, South Carolina. That meant that came from Ukraine. We've got
0: weapons coming out left and right. Yeah, they got serial numbers on them, but they're not staying in Ukraine. Hey, MFR, I mean, we, we got a hard break. MFAR, we, got, we got a hard break. <laughs> top of the hour. If you want to hold, the floor is yours. On the other side, back in a few eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Last hour of this Thursday morning. Is the caller still there? No, I think he is. He's okay. still there. Let's go there.
6: Yes, I
0: am. Uh, so, th- th- keep spreading uh, those uh, conspiracy theories, MFR. Have at it.
6: <laughs> so it. I don't know if it's a conspiracy theory or not, but um, I think you've probably got a whole lot of different forces looking at this from different directions. If you go back to the early 90s when the Soviet Union fell, um, you, you and I grew up about basically about the same time. And I, and I politely commented yeah. – you said communist – Russia was communist yesterday. They're not communist anymore. They're probably closer to we were in the 80s than we are now. We, we've gotten away from those values, but all that said – Bush got on TV and said there was going to be Bush senior was got on TV said there was going to be a new world order uh, that, that no longer was the rule of the jungle going to be whatever it was going to be the law of man fast forward. you, the, you end up with Yeltsin and Clinton and Clinton's trying to get Yeltsin to give away a bunch of Russia to what we would call Blackrock K Street, all the above back then. Because Russia's sitting on basically $80 trillion worth of natural resources nobody pays attention to. Then we go further in. Putin takes over. The Russian people are a proud people. They, they, they're, they're a great nation. We, we shouldn't take them as fools or, or crazy people or what have you. Putin took back over after Yeltsin and built it back up, and he has done so. You get into 2014, and you have something called the Maidan Revolution, color revolution. And there's pretty good evidence that we were behind it, at least the CIA was, at least some aspects of that that happened. Victoria Newland was the architect of that. She is now back behind the scenes driving this policy now. If you look into her, and this is what I mentioned yesterday in that text, she is directly related to Leon Trotsky who was a true Marxist. He was Lenin's left-hand man. <laughs> Stalin was the right-hand man. When Lenin died, Stalin wanted power, so he basically ran Trotsky out. He ends up in Mexico and ends up being assassinated by Stalin's um, in, v- uh, in VKD. Um, but But that's how you get there. She's directly related to him. She's in charge of this. I can't help but think there's some sort of, uh, vindictiveness about her wanting to get back in there, and to your point, you mentioned it earlier. Um, who is arresting all the news media? Why is there only one news outlet now in Ukraine? Um, who are arrested all the the priests? Was it Putin? No, it it was Zelensky. It, it, so who is the who's the communist in all this? Is it is it Putin? And I know everybody keeps saying he's going to invade NATO. I don't think he really had any intentions of going past the Dnieper River and that was just to save the Russian speaking side over there that we had been supplying ammunition to that had been shelling them since 2014 since the Maidan revolution while we had signed the Minsk 1 accords and you had us basically building up a army called the Azov Battalion which we were funding and training we had Ford guys that were on the on the field training them and they basically have been wiped out by the the Russian army. And Putin wasn't lying when he said he was fighting Nazis. I mean if you look at their garb, if you look at their tattoos, they're all black suns, swastikers. they're running around, you know, how Hitler doing blood soil rituals. You can't make it up, all you gotta do is look. Joe said he did his research, go look that up then. I mean you can find it it's all over the place if you wanna find it. But if you don't want to find it, you're going to see what he said, that the Russians are losing. If anything, we modernized their army. He's right. We transformed them all right. They're probably one of the most premier fighting forces on the face of the earth right now because we did it. They, Artillery's king of the battlefield, and they can turn out stuff. We, we're great as aerial, naval power, but we don't really fight ground wars. They're slinging 70,000 155 millimeter shells a day we can't even make 35,000 a day to give to anybody much less keep for ourselves so anyway i, I don't know where he's getting his info that, that somehow or another the russians are dying I and mean, we heard that from the get-go with the ghost of kiev flying around killing everybody and it turns out that as you noted they're now drafting old people and kidnapping the young people who were trying to dodge the draft so they didn't get killed in that meat grinder that's going on over I bet tonight when it comes out with Tucker and Putin, I think it comes on at 8, 6, whatever comes on tonight, I bet we're going to find out that he actually wants peace and that nobody's willing to talk with him from the Biden administration. I bet you we find that out tonight, but I'll leave it there. I've said a lot.
0: Well, that's a lot. <laughs> thank thank you. Appreciate the call. And, I mean, the, the, the entanglement of Russia and America. I mean, I grew up in the Cold War, Rev, MFR, thought about growing up in the Cold War. there were these. There were, we were trained, Josh. I mean, you didn't have (laughs) the benefit of this. Um, You've been able to think about Russia in a very different light. Rev and I weren't allowed that. I mean, Russia was bad. I mean, Russia was evil. Everything about Russia uh, was bad. When MFR's talking, I go back. I told Rev, I am thankful to God in heaven. I mean, there are a lot of things I'm not good at, but but remembering things. I've always been able to remember things. So when MFR is talking about some of the uh, entanglement between Russia and America and the Ukrainian Um, Situation? Does anybody remember um, when Tim Scott at one of these um, at one of these hearings when Biden Biden appointed? Because I found the article. Right? I mean, once again, I I just I can recall these articles and I can find them on the fly. Um, Has anybody ever heard of Sala Omarova?
2: Mm, She was
0: Biden's pick for the comptroller of the currency of the Treasury Department. I mean, Biden wanted her to be in the Treasury. I mean, Yellen is Treasury Secretary. They work with the Fed. They work in monetary policy. They work with, you know, the budget and all these other sorts of things. Um, Why does that matter? I mean, why why am I trying to tie this together? Because Omarova came to America on uh, an exchange student program She has a degree in economics from the University of Moscow. She was a Lenin scholar. And here's the scary part. I mean, obviously, she has a different view of the free market than than we have. And Tim Scott, I'll try to find some of the back and forth. I mean, why would you listen to a subcommittee meeting when someone is being vetted about being comptroller of the currency? That's what she is currently. She is currently comptroller of the currency as a Treasury Department employee She's a University of Moscow graduate, and she was a Lenin Scholarship recipient. So, you know, talking about globalist, wow. Um, So she's not a big fan of the free market. But during the administration, because MFR brought this up, during the Bush administration, the first, excuse me, the second Bush administration, she served in the Treasury Department as a special advisor on regulatory policy. you're ready to the undersecretary for domestic um finance. Uh, she's a Marxist theist. I mean, you heard her thesis mm. and the University of Moscow is a Lenin scholar recipient. Um I mean that Marxists have contempt for the free market. I mean that's just the nature of of what they believe. So I mean I just think when so we, it makes
2: sense that we'd put her in charge well, of he, our currency.
0: And it makes total sense. But, but but Biden put her in charge. But he didn't go pluck her from Moscow. She was already a part of the federal government. George W. Bush made her some sort of special advisor. Now she came here during the Gorbachev era. She came here to attend college at the University of Wisconsin, I think. I think she got a PhD from the. I'm, I'm gonna try to find the interview or uh, interview, the interview. I'm a, the committee when she was vetted, and some of the things Scott said. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll read some of the transcript here. Now we're getting way in the weeds. Um, here's Tim Scott. you ready? Um, I want to be fair and I will be fair. I won't be hyperbolic, but I will be frank and honest. I can't think of a nominee more poorly suited to be control of the, of the currency based solely on your public positions, statements of the weight of your writings than you are. Um, so the federal government are telling you that Putin is a dictatorial thug. He's a cold-blooded killer. At the same time, the Biden administration are placing as the comptroller of our currency within the Treasury Department, someone who graduated from the University of Moscow and received the Lenin scholarship. How hypocritical can humans be? I mean, if the shoe fits, wear it, unless you're the powerful. You don't have to wear the shoe. You make it up as you go. And I don't know why, but when MFR is talking about some of these, I, I remember, and I'll try my best, it is an interesting, it is a fascinating back and forth. And Tim does a great job, a great job of drawing out of her this Marxist thesis that she believes in and the, the lack of respect she has for the free market so it would stand to reason. She's not an economist at, at you know, uh, Georgetown. She's not an economist at Stanford or UCAL Berkeley. I mean, I'm sure she could be. I mean, they would welcome her with open arms. No, she's comptroller of the currency at the Treasury Department. And she was brought onto the scene by George W. Bush, who we know the Bushes were globalist. I mean, there's no doubt the Bushes were globalist. It's, um, I mean, it's, th- there's always dots here, guys. I mean, th- these folks are playing chess every day they wake up. I mean, every single day they wake up, um, she has great disdain for the. I mean, I'll try to find the back and forth. It'll probably be hard, but, um, but Tim took her to task and said, you are the least qualified candidate for any position that I've ever sat on a committee and tried to vet and understand. Um, I mean, she's going to work at the Treasury, and she hates the free market. <laughs> she's going to be comptroller of the currency, and she hates capitalism. Makes perfect sense. You
2: can't make this stuff up.
0: But Putin is an evil dictator, Rev. Putin is an evil dictator. This lady who graduated from the University of Moscow wrote her thesis on Marxism, contrary to the free markets, she's a Lenin scholarship recipient. Now, she did get her PhD from Wisconsin, so I guess that baptizes her in the um, the significance of the American dream. Let's go to the phone. Jim in Florence.
2: Good morning, Jim. You're on the air.
10: Hey, good morning guys, we keep a theme of how unserious our government is. Um, When I think about um, this idea of us sending our boys over to Ukraine or sending our money to Ukraine or or what have you, I I think about the the Hawaii Supreme Court ruling that just came down
6: uh, about um,
10: them basically not agreeing agreeing with Bruin and that uh, individuals don't have the right to keep and bear arms in Hawaii. And they said, the thing about the old days, they the old days, they quoted a line from a TV show, The Wire, that aired on HBO as their justification for stripping a man of his individual rights to keep and bear arms in Hawaii can, not to be hyperbolic, but I'll be hyperbolic, I will shed every ounce of blood I have. To ensure that my sons don't shed a drop of blood for this military industrial complex so that people can buy $2.4 million houses on Kiowa Island. It's us first, not them first. Thank you, Ken.
0: Thank you, Jim. Appreciate it. Well, that really goes back to, and well said, unique disruptor, establishment normalcy. And, and, the conventional wisdom part of establishment normalcy, and I'm getting, I mean, I, I, I start confusing myself when I go down, I mean, I know it's in my head and this busy head syndrome takes over and it's hard to say everything that I've got jumbled up in this feeble brain of mine. But, but I think that's a fair way to argue the point. There are Americans who know that something's not right, but they're so conditioned to believe conventional wisdom and conventional wisdom tells them that the establishment normalcy is the path forward. And when you ask a question, and I did this in uh in the article I wrote for Facebook and Fitz News picked it up, what is normal? I mean, if if if, if the if the great debate in the Republican Party today, and it is, you've got Nikki Haley who embodies and is a manifestation of establishment normalcy, and you've got Donald Trump who is without doubt a political disruptor, a unique political disruptor. What is more American to do? I mean, think about your patriotic duty. I mean, think about Lexington and Bunker Hill and some of the other. I mean, what if establishment normalcy had won and we didn't have political disruption, we'd all probably still be bowing to a king and speaking a little less Southern um, English. And and I'm not trying to be nostalgic, I'm trying not, not trying not to be romantic, I'm not trying to be anything. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not a history teacher, I'm not running for office. I mean, if I were, that would be part of my spiel, that would be part of my, part of my speech. But, but it's so unpatriotic to vote for the establishment normal candidate when there's nothing normal about the establishment. And the reason that so many of you have bought into establishment normalcy is conventional wisdom, doesn't require work I mean I hate to say this because I'm insulting my listeners I don't believe I'm insulting the majority of you but I am insulting a lot of Americans it's it's easy to be a conformist it's easy to accept conventional wisdom it's easy to believe the bumper sticker that Vladimir Putin's bad if Putin's that bad then why is the comptroller of the currency a graduate of the University of Moscow and a Lenin scholarship recipient I mean can you have it both ways? I mean, she says publicly, you ready? I mean, here are her announcements. Here are her pronouncements. We're talking about communism. We're talking about socialism. We're talking about the USSR. We're, we're talking about, you know, we're, we're, we're the experiment in liberty and freedom, and they're not, right? We're the good guys. They're the bad guys. We got the white hat. They got the black hat. Here's what she said um, in her confirmation process. Imagine what it would be like if instead of just a public option for deposit banking, this would be actually the full transition, In other words, there would be no more private bank deposit accounts and all the deposit accounts would be held directly by the Fed. Whoa. I mean, that's that's verbatim. That's what this lady said that the Biden administration nominated as comptroller of the currency. Um, I mean, wow. But Lenin, I mean, Putin's bad, and he may be. I mean, he may be the most evil man in the history of the world. He may not be. But if you believe he's the most evil man in the history of the world, why do you believe that? And that's all I'm asking. We were talking earlier about the draft. And, and should we re-implement the draft? Um, a, a bit of me says yes, because I think it reinvigorates civic pride and community service and patriotism and an awareness we have about the country we're allowed uh, to be a part of. And that's easy for me to say now, because both of my kids are past the draft age. Um, and I'm not saying I'm for fight. I'm being a bit hypocritical. I don't want to fight wars, but I want to have a draft. No, I want people to be more aware of how misled they've been by our government. And I think if you're forced to make a commitment to consider what the government is or is not, we're a better nation. And we'd have less men walking poodles, wearing skinny jeans, drinking uh, wine coolers. <laughs> That's always a good thing. Right? Yeah, I mean, who can good deny thing. that? Less <laughs> men wearing skinny jeans, walking poodles, drinking wine mixers. I mean, that—that's or wine coolers. I'm sorry. That—that's a—that's a good day in America. Yeah. Take a break. <laughs> we'll be back in just a few moments. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there.
2: Daphne in Dillon. Hi, Daphne. You're on.
11: Good morning, guys. I've uh, been listening to all this, and you know, Ukraine is a giant money laundering piggy bank because if every democrat is for it you know and half the republicans are for it it's a giant money laundering piggy bank also they were on you think about this the democrats were all in with russia and loved them until they decided that ukraine could be their piggy bank and then they turned against russia Think about the North Stream 2 oil line. You know, Trump closed that. First thing Biden did was open it back up for Russia. It's almost like, you know, we'll pay this side, we'll pay that side to start a war. So anyway, you think about why they hate Trump so much. Not one single troop was killed in the last 18 months of his presidency, not one. He targeted Soleimani because Soleimani was the problem, the Iranian, he was the problem, and he also sanctioned Iran. Okay, Joe Biden walks in, he starts funding Iran by giving them money all the time so that they can finish their nuclear and fund all the terrorists. When he pulled out of Afghanistan, 13 troops were killed. He said the Taliban are good guys, okay? Then he funds them with $2 billion, right? He is currently funding the Taliban $2 billion, all right? Uh, the, uh, The Abraham Peace Accords, they could not allow Trump to completely cause peace in the Middle East. So what do they do? They fund all the terrorists to start a war in the Middle East. Those, if I were a Republican, I would be pulling every executive order and everything that this administration has done to hurt the American people. And I would prove to them that the 20 billion supposedly for border security, is for processing more to bring them into America, terrorists and all. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Daphne. Appreciate that. You know, when you really think about it, I mean, maybe we're on the right trail here. If the conventional wisdom is trust the government, I mean, they're not perfect, but they're not going to intentionally mislead. I mean, they're, they're certainly not going to appoint a communist that's control of the currency, I mean that—that's nonsense. I mean, stop with that craziness. Uh, you know how those radio show guys are. It, it's almost like there's this linear graph, Josh, and on one end of the graph is conventional wisdom. On the other end of the graph is conspiracy theorist, and as you as you kind of make your way from conventional wisdom to conspiracy theorist, there is an all hands on deck effort to marginalize anybody that drifts off too far down. Down that graph, the nuts, the wackos, the crazies, the talk show listener, the talk show host, um, the blogger, the podcaster, the Joe Rogan's of the world, the Tucker Carlson's of the world. Let's let's not argue on their points. Let's marginalize their personalities. I mean, they never say Tucker's wrong. They say he's a he's a tool. He's a lapdog. Well, let me let's talk about what he said. What what do, what, what what did the context of the podcast reveal? They never contradict that. They never right. say, "Wow." I mean, Tucker got some of that right. No, Tucker is a stool. He's a he's a tool. He's a he's a, a pawn of the game. You know how those guys, the radio show guys. You know what they are? I mean, they're propagandists. I mean, they're doing all Actually, this. Actually,
2: I think it was maybe Hillary Clinton said
0: Tucker's a useful idiot. Yeah, but that's what she called him. But but she never said Tucker's wrong seventy five percent of the time. It's never about the, issue. the accuracy or not of the conspiracy, right? It's always about those nutty conspiracy theorists. They're wackos. Well, I mean, to me, you're doing yourself a disservice to kind of, um, believe the conventional wisdom of the company line that the government is by and large to be trusted every now and then they'll make a mistake like Vietnam or Iraq, you know, but who's keeping up. I mean, you know, every now and then they'll make a, a 20 year, $15 trillion mistake, but, I mean, they're doing the best they can. But, but that's the conventional wisdom. And then on the other end, and, and the argument I'm making and I'm trying to make is, as Trump reveals himself to be the unique disruptor, there are more people questioning the legitimacy of the government. And once they lose that moral authority rev, it's destabilizing. I mean, it, we're not there yet. We're getting ever closer. Conventional wisdom is dead. I mean, it's absolutely dead. It's the, the classified ads in the newspaper. I mean, Craigslist came along and obliterated that economic pillar of print media. All of a sudden, we've got this, we're, we're, we're trekking down. And every time a conspiracy theory comes true, what, what do a lot of us say? Wow, okay, maybe those folks aren't as crazy as I thought they were. Maybe the Rand Pauls of the world. Remember when Rand Paul said, you know, you're, 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 you're spying on us. You're reading our emails. You're reading some of our personal correspondences and America kind of like, wow, I mean, that Rand Paul's a crazy guy. (laughs) Craziness he said at that subcommittee or that full committee hearing. Clapper said, that's a lie. Well, guess what Clapper had to do? Clapper had to come back and apologize. Now he was not perjured. He should have been because he lied under oath. I mean, he should have been. I mean, he was guilty of perjury, But, but he's one of them. He's one of the insiders. If Tucker Carlson had appeared before Congress, and said something fundamentally dishonest, he'd be in Alcatraz. Because once again, he's not a conformist. He doesn't buy the common logic. He doesn't buy the, the, the establishment narrative. And, and I, that's encouraging to me. And I know people in my world think I'm out there too far. I mean, they've told me so. I mean, I've had friends over a beer. Hey, man, you're getting further out there. Ah, they, they drove me over there. What do you mean they drove you over there? Dude, I read this stuff every day. I know what they say, and I know what ends up happening, and they're never the same. They told us the vaccine had no side effects. We knew it did. I mean, any human being knows that you can't decide whether a a medicine has side effects in 10 months. I mean, there's not been clinical studies done, but they were willing, and they knew. Here's 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 the problem. They know how many of you are willing to buy into conventional wisdom because it's hard to not. And they know how socially unacceptable some of these things can be. And, you know, they they know that. They know there's a lot of you out there smart enough to scratch your head and say, wow, that medicine didn't exist six months ago, and now they want me to give it to my five-year-old kid. But they know how dependent you are on fitting in society, being socially acceptable, keeping your job, keeping your – your reputation, I mean, that, that's the quandary that a lot of us find ourselves in. And, and I said earlier, I get it. I mean, Rev knows this to be true. There were a lot of doctors who had a lot of questions about the pandemic. They were not allowed to ask those questions because their livelihoods were at risk. And I asked Rev, what would you have done? I'd have done what the doctors did. What would I have done? I'd have done what the doctors did. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not living in a car with my family. You don't have any money to put food on my table. I'm not taking that risk or chance. They know that Pfizer knows that governmental leadership knows that that's not a conspiracy theory. You got to be a nut to not believe that. I mean, if you don't believe that you're one of those naive human beings that has ever existed and you should never be near the center of power. Let's take a, let's take a call. Rujan in Darlington. Good morning.
12: Good morning, gentlemen. uh, Hey, listen, uh, Ken. Being 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 a a a Marine, I've, uh, I've got a daughter that was in the Navy. Uh, she's out. I've got a son that's in the Army. He's active. I got a daughter that's in the Air Force, and she's active. There's no way in hell that I would want to say yes. Yeah, send them to the Polish border uh, to uh, to uh, uh, Ukraine to fight. That's ridiculous. I'm not putting up with it. And the one thing that I do know, being being in the Marine Corps, and that is there's no better person to screw up a war than a politician. Politicians have been the reason why American, America lost in Vietnam. Uh, they're the reason why we had such a problem in Afghanistan. They're the reason why we had a problem in Iraq. You know, uh, war is hell. And the Marine any Marine will tell you, our job is to go in there and kill people and break things. And when we can't kill people and break things, and we, when they try to put us on humanitarian missions, all because of quote unquote politics, it screws things up. And and they'll get us into a war, but then they don't want us want us to do the things that we do to win the war. Uh, they want to shoot policy. They want to do do uh, get their photo ops and come out there and see the troops and do everything that they can to to bolster their person, their, their, their reputations and so on and so forth. Uh, I did this. I did that. I kept true safe. That's a bunch of bull. It's a bunch of bull. I've been, I've been there. I've seen that at, at, at 19 years old. I've I got a real good taste of what, um, mm, let's say, what the U uh, S government apparatus can do. Uh, say you're doing one thing
0: and you're actually doing something different. Thank you, Rujan. And I go back. I mean, I think Tucker's the classic example of this. Who believes Tucker's dumb? Who believes that Tucker's not well-read? Who believes that Tucker's not reputable? I mean, I I get it. He's out there. There's no doubt that he's different than he was 20 years ago. He's different than he was five years ago. There's no denying that. But when they go after Tucker, when Hillary calls him a, uh, a, what did she call him? Useful Uh, idiot. He's a useful idiot. Does she say that? He's a useful idiot because he was wrong on all these things. He's a useful idiot because he's batting 30%. And any journalist batting 30 he's a useful idiot because he decided to sell his badge of journalism to become a pundit and an opinion monster like those nut radio show guys. I mean, I, I, I don't know how to evaluate. I mean, we know a batting average. We know a completion percentage. We, we know how many, you know, your average finish per start in a NASCAR race. It's hard to say how many times... Tucker's right. And how many times he's wrong? I mean, I think Tucker will admit he's not perfect, but but they never go after Tucker by saying his batting average sucks, his average finish per start sucks. I mean, they they marginalize his personality. He's a nut. What do you mean he's a nut? Why is he a nut? Because he's batting twenty percent? Because he was wrong about all these things? They never ever go there because they can't. They're wrong far more than he's wrong. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments.
9: It's time now for the Wake Up Carolina Winer Line, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. Call 803-720-5260. So, what are you whining about today?
6: I haven't heard anybody say anything about Trump's property in New York as far as what does the property value for the taxes that he's paying on it are they overvalued if so does he need a refund
0: for taxes that he's overvalued his property I, I mean the, the assessor assesses a value you can contest that assessment and they establish what the ad valorem taxes are and then you've got the appraisal assessments are not the same as appraisals there's there, there's a negotiation with the government on assessment there's a negotiation with the bank on appraisal i mean, that's the best way I can explain it and it's very common. I'm not defending it. I mean, I'm not saying that's the way it should be. But but when the government says your building is worth X, and you don't buy that, you have a right to contest that assessment. When you tell the bank your building is worth X, and the bank doesn't buy it, you have a right to negotiate. Uh, you know, some number that that everybody is cool with. That that's the way the world works. Um, they're not the same. An assessed value is not an appraised value. What is Trump Tower worth? You know what it's worth? At the end of the day, you know what it's worth? I mean, There's an appraised value of what the bank will lend based on the value of the building. But at the end of the day, Trump Tower's is worth what he'll take for it and what somebody will give. And that's not an assess nor an appraised value. The assessment may come into play. The appraisal may come into play. But at the end of the day, Josh wants to buy Trump Tower from Trump. Trump says, I'll take $300 million. Josh says, I'll give you $250 million. They settle for two hundred and seventy five million. Guess what the building's worth? Two hundred and seventy five million. I don't care what the appraisal said. I don't care what the assessment said. No bank lost money on any of the contested I mean, the lawsuits. No bank lost any money. And it's none of the government's business, in my opinion, what sort of transaction the bank and the businessman or woman do.
6: We had
11: men that was killed on the Syrian border and we don't even have service people patrolling our borders we patrol the borders of other countries give me a break
0: that's so, you know that, that's the globalist mindset I mean that you know part of our I mean there, there's a fair debate and I don't know the answer to this when does national security become global security when does global security become national security I mean that that's a very complicated ordeal I mean, I don't deny that. I think we, we said Joe is actually Jay. I think Jay made valid points. I disagree with some of the points, but I think they're valid. They're well thought out. Um, they don't jihad with exactly what I've read and some of the information I've gathered as I've tried to better understand how to substantiate the opinion that I have. But yeah, I mean, th- there's a fair debate about when national security becomes global security and vice versa. It is hard for the average American to comprehend, so we've got military men and women stationed on the Jordanian-Syrian border, but we refuse to deploy our men and women to the armed forces on our southern border.
9: I heard that Taylor Swift endorsed Biden.
6: Trump will never get the 13-year-old vote now.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, you know, the Democrats want 13 year, old, uh, 16 year olds sixteen-year-olds. I think the Democrats want to lower the voting age to um to sixteen years old. The Democrats, uh, Josh wants to raise it to twenty-five, and you pass a civics test, and you have raised two kids, you know, and you paid off your student debt, and you served two years in the army. Josh wants about a million people a year deciding the president. Right, Josh? That may be too many.
1: That, that's right. <laughs> Half and the a age million is thirty-five. Yeah,
0: you, you got about nine checks and nine boxes you got to put in. Before Josh says, and he'll send somebody to check out whether you're telling the truth or not on about six of those nine. We'll give you one. I mean, we'll cut you a little slack on one of the boxes. Okay, you say you served in the army, but you didn't. But you watched Rambo. I mean, you watched Rambo, so you know, that, <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that that's close enough. We'll give you we'll give you some credit, some credit there. Um, I mean, Taylor Swift doesn't bother me at all, and I think we appear to be a bit silly when it bothers us. I mean, I, I don't. You know, she's a. I, Is it a real relationship? I don't know and don't care. I hope she's happy. happy. I I hope she's happy. You know, if money makes you happy, she's a happy woman. Oh, my goodness. Uh, If it doesn't, (laughs) then, you know, she fights the same battles that that the rest of us do. Um, I'm pulling for the 49ers because Debo is a 49er, and I'm a Gamecock. And, I mean, I said it early. I'll say it again. Uh, It's hard to bet against the best quarterback and best coach in a big game And that's Mahomes and Andy Reid. I mean, I I think they're the best quarterback, the best coach. uh, And they've proven that. But if there's one player on either team that can quote-unquote go off, it's Debo. And I want, as a Gamecock, to see a Gamecock, a former Gamecock, on the biggest stage in sports go off. I mean, that'd be a good day for all of us. Kind of interesting. How many 49er Clemson fans, I know one in particular, want to see Debo go off. As a former, I got one that says he's former. I mean, I'm good with it now. He, he's a 49er. I'm a 49er fan. He's 49 I don't care where he went to college. I mean, I remember the days he did what he did for you guys. But anyway, uh, this is <laughs> another chapter in the book.
9: You've been listening to the Wake Up Carolina Whiner Line, brought to you by Delta Building Systems. You got something you want to whine about? Call anytime, 803-720-5260.
0: It's the official and the original Wake Up Carolina Whiner. Remember the time <laughs> that we had a, a, a scholarly articulation of Russia and Ukraine? and Dr. Bolt helped us uh, with Francis Marion University. He had somebody in Eastern Europe, kind of an expert in Eastern Europe, some of, the, um, some of the unknowns, some of the things that the media tells us that aren't quite true, some of the things that we suspect that may not be quite true. I think we should try to do that again. I mean, I think there's a lot of yeah. interest in that part of the world. Um, you know there is for the government to request $60 billion in a border security bill. And and I, I'm telling you, man, I feel for Langford. I mean I do. They kind I, of hung I, him out to dry, did they? they? They did the guy dirty. I mean, he, uh, you know, and McConnell gave him an assignment that was ultimately going to fail. I mean, it's just it was never going to get out of the house. I mean, that would have been the first. If I'm Langford, and maybe I'm a little more country smart than he is. He's from Oklahoma, should be. But if I were Langford, I'd have said, hey, what's the House going to do? I mean, if I go in there and bust it and, and deal with these Democrats and I come out and we got some compromise, why am I putting my political future at risk if the House says it's DOA? And but there's a reason McConnell passed that baton to somebody else because he knows the people of Tennessee and Oklahoma are more concerned about sending more money to Ukraine than people inside, inside the Beltway. Enjoy your day.